Hey guys, this is Dungeon Master Mitch. And this is Dungeon Master Chris. If you like our podcast and want to help support us so that we can build a life-size Buddy Dale statue to place in our front yard, head on over to patreon.com slash dungeonmasterblock and check out all of the awesome rewards that are in store for you. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we focus on, of course, the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all of our super egotistical players at the table. I'm one of your hosts, Dungeon Master Chris. And I'm Dungeon Master Mitch. And we want to welcome you to our second ever aquatic campaign episode. We are joined by uh, Rich Howard, who once again is probably, he might be a little bit sleep deprived this time. <laughs> he uh, just had a baby not too long ago. That's He'll right, he's a little, a little bit more bit. talkative than I was in yeah, this he was, episode yeah, since yeah, I yeah, wasn't yeah. there yeah. half of it. Yeah, you weren't there half of it. <laughs> had to go some, help uh, my wife with, with a flat tire. So. Yep, yep. <laughs> so if you notice that Mitch isn't there for probably about a good third to a half of the meet, that's why. So he's here at the beginning. Yep. We'll step out for a minute. And I just want to tell you guys, out. just before we start, that Marvel is better than DC. Don't listen to anything that Rich Howard says. <laughs> he's wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are going to be talking about all sorts of things. There's actually quite a few questions that you all sent to him through his email, and he will be responding to some of those, uh, some more in-depth than others, but all with really good content. And so you'll want to look forward to that. Uh, but before we get into the amazing soggy meat that we have later on Ugh. in the episode, it sounds kind of gross, yeah, right? Yeah, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but <laughs> we're going to move on. Anyways, we have a couple of shout-outs to do. These are all five-star reviews, so if you want a shout-out on our episode, if you want to be slightly famous within the, the Dungeon Master's Block episode, or, uh, followers, um, then give us an iTunes review. Give us an iTunes review. There you go. Uh, our first one comes from Gamer Veda. It says, Genius podcast with tremendously experienced GMs. Well, I'm glad I'm really good at bluff <laughs> checks. So there we go. Uh, he says, I walked in not knowing what to expect. I walked out feeling than, feeling dumber than a doornail, but enlightened and addicted for more. <laughs> These guys are master crafters. They know how to weave a story and make it engrossing for the player. Their issues with Hori aside, <laughs> this is an immersive podcast that any tabletop role-playing fan can enjoy and learn from. Thank you for providing us with so much entertainment and knowledge of the GM craft. Keep it up. Thank you very much, Thanks Gamer, so much Veda. Gamer Veda. That's awesome. Our next one comes from KJ Magel, and it is entitled Helpful Resource 5 Star. Uh, KJ says, I will be having my first try being a DM soon. That's awesome. Yeah. This is helping me so very much. Like, I need to stop writing so much about my first mission. Very interesting to listen to, very helpful ideas, and funny guys. Also, interested in their adventures and in their campaign. Thank you so much, KJ. Yeah, you are awesome. You. He's one of our guys on our forums. He's sweet. Yep. Our next one and last one, we're doing three today because we've gotten so many that if we don't do them, we might get a little Keep bit behind. We're, ar- we're already a little bit behind. So the next one is from Mashtanyak. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, it says, five stars, great variety of information. Each episode is divided up into segments. For example, story cap or story time, it recaps of their actual plays, and the meat, conversations on specific topics. The meat is by far my favorite part, and there is a wide variety of information discussed from episode to episode with the bulk of each individual episode focused on a single topic. That's what we hope to do. We have a lot more to come. We want to give you guys as much information about things we've learned so that you can 
hopefully forego some painful times <laughs> through your DMing experience with whatever whatever it is we're talking about. So thank you for those five-star reviews. Keep them coming in. We're going to do something awesome when we get to 100. Remember that. You should be excited for that. And without further ado, we're going to get into story time. Story time. The time during the episode where we talk about what happened last week during our campaigns, our favorite moments, what we learned about ourselves, and what we learned about each other. Please join us now as we enjoy story time. All right, so this week for story time, we played another edition of uh, my campaign. And this time it was, if you remember last time we left off, you guys got you went through the, the the pool of water. You spawn like you you appeared in the land of North Otham, which is just a frozen wasteland, snow yep. as far as the eye can see, snow and ice. Um, and Dale had sent you on this mission to find, like you had talked with uh, Bolton Reed, the prophet who came in and was like, "Oh, these there's there's these dragon spawn coming." Like, and you guys you guys had heard the tales of dragon spawn before, like. Or you heard the, the tales of dragon spawn from him, like what they yeah. what they're possibly going to do in the world. Like they're they're people that are captured by dragons, uh, sent through the dragon's fire because the dragon's fire. You guys don't know exactly what that is yet. He didn't explain what it was, but it has a way of whoever controls it to manipulate whatever passes through there into whatever they want their will to be. Um, and so, and as the, even though they're not pure true dragons, the terrifying thing is the numbers that yeah. could overwhelm us mm-hmm. by these yep, things. Yep, they he said like from what he described to you guys and what you've been told from Dale, they're not as powerful as dragons, but they retain some of the properties of them and they just can they're easy to make from what he understands if somebody wants to and they could just sheer by, by numbers alone overwhelm everything if they got enough people to transform into dragons <laughs> yeah so, and and saying something is not quite as powerful as a dragon doesn't make them seem weak at all right right <laughs> anybody so they, who plays they, D&D knows that right so they're they're not they're also not like they're not adult sized dragons they're like really young dragons so they're not they're not huge and super powerful but that's still powerful enough to scare, Once again, to yeah, scare people, numbers yeah terrifying yes yes so this is what you guys are going bolton told you like it was somewhere that was cold and frozen and you guys didn't i mean you guys never have never been to north Otham before but i was like that that's what you guys would think of when you think of cold and ice and snow Mm -hmm. like you would think of north Otham. and so dale was like all right we're gonna send you up there figure out where it is it's probably like it's it's they're probably in a cave somewhere up there and you guys are like Okay. <laughs> like, thanks for the direction, that, you know. And and he gave you like a couple of different. He gave you a couple of different mountain ranges that he's like, okay, they they might be around here. Like he gave you a couple of different caves to go to. Um, and so you guys had you guys spawned in, and you started heading west uh, towards the mountains. And you guys, you know, you you found you ended up meeting up with these trolls, and they started. But they were like, yeah, like one of them knew very broken draconic, and so that was really weird for you, like can we trust these guys? Like what's going on with this? And so you guys kept going, you kept going and uh, you got to this place that's known by the trolls and on your maps, it was called the cave of the voiceless. Mm -hmm. And uh, you entered into this and it just looked like pure ice on the inside of it. Like it was the, the bluest ice you had ever seen before. And it wasn't like the, 
a typical big cave like this. Like you've heard tales of these things called ice giants before. And you're wondering like, should we go in here? <laughs> like, are we, are we going to die from ice trolls? Or are we going to die from dragons? Like what in the world is going on yeah. here? <laughs> uh, and so you guys, you guys started going through this place and you noticed like really quickly in, uh, into this cave, you noticed that all of the ice trolls were like, you don't know exactly what happened to them or the ice giants. You don't know exactly what happened to them, but they look like they've been petrified in place. Like all of them. They just look like they're not moving. They're like frozen in place. Some of them are opening doors. Some of them are sitting on benches. Some of them are like trying to, you know, there's some of them that are like wrestling with each other, trying to push each other out of the way and stuff as you're going through these, these hallways. And, uh, you guys travel through a couple of these rooms and you come up against, your first opponent that looks like it's trying to prevent you from getting to where the dragon spawn are. Uh, You guys started going through your first hallways, and you guys ran into your first opposition in this cave. And it seemed kind of easy for you guys. Like, they... These creatures aren't super, super strong. Like, they're... They're they're, basically creatures... spells. Men made out of ice. Correct? Yep. Yep. They were very... But they were very malleable still at the same time. Like you guys noticed if like you know, somebody would shoot, like if Martin shot him with an arrow, it'd kind of like infuse and then it would like reheal itself and the arrow would mm-hmm. fall off. And it would still do damage and like you would slice through with the sword and it would kinda of put this gash across, but it would reform and slowly over time the more damage you did, the less healing properties or whatever it was that they had looked like it was actually working. Yeah, and so um, we, we like, battled these things, and I think just the fact that we were in a land of ice and snow, both me and Caleb, who are both mm-hmm. magic users, were like, yep. um, I bet you fire spells are going to be useful yep. here. Like, yep. we don't know, we're not sure what kind of dragons are hiding here, if any, if we're going to come across dragon spawn, but you know what? This is probably a safe bet. And so mm-hmm. these things pop up, and we're both like, okay. And so with between my fireballs and his fire spells, it was just like, these things are, we'd, we'd run into a room, there'd be six that pop out, I'd cast fireball, and it's like, they're dead. All right, let's, because it, it did double damage, and mm-hmm. the fireball spell in itself is pretty awesome, and it, it, it would hit them all. And so we were blasting through this dungeon with these things, like, feeling pretty good about ourselves, to the point where we said, guys, like... This seems to be a big cave. Mm-hmm. Let's split up to cover more ground. Yep. And when I say yep. that we decided that, it was pretty much me saying, guys, much let's split saying, up. Hey, we've done this split in the past. The this is like, a good idea. Yeah. And, and I stand by it that it's always fun, and we got to discover a lot more of the dungeon quicker. And I was mm-hmm. just like, let's let's split up. Like Each group take a magic user. And so... And uh, you guys also had the trolls with you, so you each took a troll. But yep. what was funny is the group that you weren't in had the draconic one so you were you were left with like this really stupid one but seemed really really like he was super strong like if you look at his stats his his stats are stronger than the other ones yeah but the other one is way more intelligent than what this one is <laughs> um but they seem like they're best buds uh so you guys you guys kept going kept going and you started to come across these rooms as you were fighting more of these ice creatures um which <laughs> There were these parts where, like, they would point at the ground underneath you guys, 
and the ground would just like turn into water and then instantly freeze and you would just be stuck right in the ground there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that could be really annoying. Like they're not very strong, but if enough of them were to like do that yeah, spell over right and over again, you would those slowly things would be terrible. When they hit yeah. me with a frozen and spot spell, I'm just like, I can still cast variable. When I yep. run out of these, these things are gonna be terrible. <laughs> but yep. right now, yeah. well, these the things thing are is able, too, the able thing is to too, like they can do the spell over and over and over yeah. in place again. So you could gradually sink lower and lower Ooh, and lower. See that and never happened to us, but that's terrible. It didn't happen that's enough. terrifying. But yeah, that's that was the thing that like you you guys killed them quick enough that you never had to experience that. Um but if it did happen, something really interesting would happen. Yeah, I didn't even know so. that about the spell. I remember you using the spell, and I, as a curious DM, I was just like, "Chris, are these actual creatures? Or do you make these up?" Like, or, and I think I think I was more just asking about the spell. I think I was like, "Did you? Is this an actual spell? Or yeah, did you make yeah, this you up?" Were like, did you make? And this you're spell like, or "Oh, you... I just made it up." And I was like, "Kudos, man! That's a yeah. sweet spell." And now I know that it's even more terrifying and awesome mm-hmm. <laughs> because yeah, it can so, be so it can stack that, basically in yep, its terrifying. It's like that. It it. It just stacks on top of it, and then eventually, like, if you sink far enough down into the ice, the ice begins to shape you into one of those creatures. Ooh, um, nice. And so, yeah, it's like once you get far enough down, you have to start making, like, fortitude saves in order to, like, prevent yourself from becoming one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully somebody's around. Otherwise, you're going to, like, suffocate to death and yeah. eventually just succumb to becoming one of those creatures. <laughs> so... That might give you guys a little bit of backstory into why there's so many of them. People may have come up here exploring or, yeah, you'll you'll have to wait and find out to see how the rest of those things are made. Um, pretty anyways, sure that, you guys, you I'm pretty sure, going. and you probably don't care about this, but I'm pretty sure that's what the Crystal Men in Adventure Time do. So that's oh, cool. Really? <laughs> I've never watched Adventure Time, so you're missing out. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, so I, yeah, and I know you. I know you didn't steal it from that. That was no. more me just going. You know how much I love Adventure Time, so yeah, I'm like, yeah. well done again. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you're you're mirroring um, one of my favorite cartoon shows. Hey, there we go. Yep. So you guys kept going through this dungeon, and you guys eventually started running across these rooms uh, that had these like empty craters all throughout the walls um and they looked like they were like charred on the inside and they were like it seemed like these icemen were trying to protect something or maybe they were guardians for what was ever in here and they seemed like they were uh almost just like on patrol to make sure that whatever came through here didn't get any further and find out to so they couldn't find out what was going on in this cave um you guys you know martin and cracks went one way you and uh ernie for I don't remember what his super long name yeah. was. Ernie, you guys were going through. Um, and eventually you got to this point where you hit a trap. Yeah, we, but it wasn't a normal trap. This was, and this, I think nope. this is another one that I said, kudos, Chris. This was sweet. We, we reach this room. It doesn't have a door on it. We look inside. I don't remember the contents of the room that I saw. Uh, but I, I reach this room and I just am like, all right. Let's. Uh, we've been traveling, traveling it through looked, these hallways, like a, like a storage yeah. room. And so we've you. been traveling through these hallways, and I think we were just kind of like opening doors and looking in and being like, okay, no enemies. Uh, next room, and just kind of like seeing what's mm-hmm. in. We are like, we'll go back to it. Well, let's just see what this dungeon has to offer and see how far we can get. And so this one did not have. I think we ran a, into a dead end. So I came back and I'm like, all right, let's check this room. I step in, I disappear. The illusion. Well, you don't know that. You the illusion yeah. that was covering this door is gone. 
this teleportation thing. It wasn't an illusion. It was like this this open air pocket. It was a it was a one time it was a one time window in the air kind of teleportation. Thing. Yeah. yeah, and so I end up in this other room that you you told me like today like was the second level of this dungeon, and mm-hmm. Ernie is left behind looking into another room. I'm gone, and just like, all right, we already split the party. We just split the party again unintentionally. Yep. Yep. I have no idea yep. where Crom so is. Now you're a single. You're a single person walking <laughs> through this dungeon. Caleb's character Ernie's a single person walking through this dungeon. Well, he's got the troll still, so he's he's semi semi okay but you're just like oh crap (laughs) (laughs) i'm left by myself somewhere Krob's a little bit like oh crap mitch is a little bit like oh crap but more just like this is kind of cool (laughs) i split the party even more because i love splitting the party and so there was there was three ways down from the second level um one way was almost what looked like to be an improvised way down to the second story and so Caleb found his way down through that. It wasn't like a wasn't like a stair, staircase or anything like that. Uh, Caleb's character and Martin found a ladder that went down, and so they took that. It was a it was a huge ladder for them. So it took a little bit of work for them to get down because it's used by frost giants back in the day. Um, and so you guys eventually like you guys kept seeing more of these pods, and you're like, holy <laughs> crap! Like there is a lot of these things, but you don't know what was coming out of them yet. Um, and you eventually, uh, nothing else really, I mean, you fought some things, you guys each fought some things and you guys worked your way through the dungeon and eventually like you guys were just playing circles with each other for a really long time. And I was like, okay, you guys have pretty much cleared everything out. Two of the groups had found each other. I was like, okay, I think it was, I think it was you were the last one. I was like, okay, Mitch, I'm just going to let you go until you find people because I don't know where everybody is and like time span, like how everybody, where everybody is in, in their like I just don't know where everybody is Uh, and so I was like okay you're just gonna walk around until you find them because that's the easiest way to get you back together you've cleared all the rooms you're just walking circles around each other at this point Uh, so you guys eventually found each other and right before this uh, Caleb's character had heard something down the hallway and so he was like okay we should probably head that way because it sounds like something's going on there um, and you guys walk down this hallway together. You walk into this room, and there's some of the pods on the wall are empty, and yet there's four of them that aren't empty. And when you step into the room, they explode, and out come these black, semi-deformed, like they don't—they look like dragons. They look like of, dragons, you know. They but they, they don't—they don't look, look like, like dragons. perfect dragons. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, like, some of them don't have wings. Some of them have wings. Like, I didn't do the best job explaining <laughs> this because it was, like, 12 o'clock at night already. But basically what they look like is they some of them don't have tails. Like, they're just, they're just not fully dragons. But they have some of the properties of dragons still. They're black, red eyes, and what happened from there oh uh, we decided to fight them we began a battle and i think we did it pretty well because we took the strategy mm-hmm. that i think most seasoned D players are aware is usually the best strategy of don't split up and each take one but everybody try and kill one and then work your way to another and we didn't do it completely i think it was like two of us focused on one and two of us focused on one and 
I, me and uh, hashtag Magic Mark, two tanks, like basically worked together to just demolish one. The trolls, yeah. And Actually, trolls, we all, that's what it was. We all focused too, yeah. on one, I believe. The trolls focused on another. And the trolls mm-hmm. were not doing as well because they were getting hit by fire and stuff and acid i think and they and both those yeah. suck for them yeah the the two that the two that they decided to go up against one of them was fighting against uh one that did fire damage and one was like one was yeah one i yeah. think they both got hit by the cone of fire and then the other one got well, hit because by the one of the things of you said was, was like, uh, oh, a, <laughs> another frightening aspect of these dragon spawn is although they appeared black deformed with red eyes they're not all descendants or having traits of black dragons it's like you can't tell what color mm-hmm. dragon traits that these things have so it's not like yeah, oh he's black he's a dragon yep. he's gonna have acid that's what he's like you could get fire you get ice you, mm-hmm. you can get sonic mm-hmm. you could get lightning you don't know from what you what you see what you're gonna mm-hmm. get but yeah, so we we took care of these things yep. and fairly so, easy. They did. Yeah. They did, oh yeah, they, they did. did. This was not. This like was not all, the Ice Man where it was like off, fireball but... spell and done. Nope. Uh, I'm not saying they weren't a challenge. Yep. I'm just saying I'm proud of my group for the way they handled the battle. We did. We did well for mm-hmm. like a battle mm-hmm. that we knew we we were fighting Dragon Spawn. We knew it was going to be scary. Yep. And so from there, uh, you guys kind of like licked your wounds a little bit. We're helping each other out, and from down the hallway again, you hear the same kind of <laughs> well, that these dragon spawn not were the same from this room because there was but a heck of a lot more of it. Yeah, it was a lot louder. Yes, uh, and so you guys are like, okay, are we like, are we walking into the huge like? mother dragon's den from like how to train a dragon like is that what we're going into or you know so you guys you guys aren't quite sure you were left at this point of okay we hear this really loud noise of like hundreds and hundreds of dragon spawn what in the world do we do um yeah and that's where we left off for the night so you guys are left wondering like are we gonna die <laughs> i think it was like, such a cliff you what, know i was i wasn't tired at this point i think i kept on going or we could just fight it now come on guys because i was just like no this cliffhanger is too much man and, come on <laughs> but that's where we are yeah 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 so that's where that's where we are we're going to be playing again here shortly in my campaign uh and then you guys will hear possibly the conclusion to that part uh, where I just said that so our party did really it. good against the dragon spawn. I'm going to eat those words. You're not, but I feel like there's going to be a lot more of them. So I feel like it's not going to be a revenge thing, but the I feel like I'm going to eat those the wor- words. <laughs> the gods of the dice heard you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, The gods of the dice heard you, Mitch. <laughs> so, yeah, stay tuned. You'll you'll hear it again shortly in our next in one of our next story times. So with that, we are going to head to... I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meat? Carving that! Just a mouthful! No! Looks like meat back on the menu, boys! Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of The Meat. This time in this episode, we are going to be talking with Rich Howard. Welcome back, Rich. 
Hey, thanks. Yeah, we, we are going to be talking about aquatic campaigns yet again. We had a super awesome response last time Rich was on here talking about aquatic campaigns. It was it was as if everybody had a little bit of a brain explosion, I think, last time because we got <laughs> we got multiple comments of like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe there's that much information about underwater that we didn't know about. These things are so – like that place is so stinking cool. Like we want to do a whole campaign there and people – you know, we're, we're super excited. And, you know, I, I did one myself. You were, yeah. I mean, it came out a couple I, weeks ago, the story time and you just wrote, <laughs> yeah. you were like, that's so cool. If you did, if I you was, didn't know what happened last time, we, we basically had to chase a dragon, a black dragon that can breathe underwater. And Mitch, Mitch's character, Karab ended up jousting a black dragon on the back of a dragon turtle. And we had a whole experience with like underwater tunnels <laughs> and like acid pools underwater. And it was, it was yeah. so, it was so much fun, and uh, I thank you for that specifically because that was an awesome moment for me as a DM to do that for the first time. Mitch has never done it; I've never done it. It was just awesome experience for our players to be like, "Yeah, we can fight this black dragon." Oh wait, nothing yeah. really works underwater <laughs> here. And so there was this moment of yeah. like, we have a dragon turtle with us, but we're pretty much useless. Is this even going to be able to work? So I, I thank you for that. Our listeners, thank you for all of your knowledge and information brought about sure. uh, in this aquatic campaign setting that we're talking about. And so before we start, Rich, what's what's new in your world? What's been going on with you? Yeah. Um, well, a few weeks ago, I, I had my second child. So yeah, I'm congratulations little, uh, on that. Thanks so much. Yeah, I'm a little, uh, a little spacey around the edges. So <laughs> right. uh, we'll, we'll edit out all the yawning. I'm yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, outside of that, from on a gaming front, um, I had done some work for Rogue Genius Games, but I'm now officially on their website, which is yeah. really exciting to me. Um, Owen Stevens does, <laughs> man, if you're not familiar with Owen Stevens stuff, I, I'm blown away by the quality that that guy just cranks out. And in addition to that, he, he not only owns Rogue Genius and works for Green Ronin, who is an amazing publisher. He was hired, I think, last year also at Paizo. So the oh, man really? works at three different companies <laughs> doing major, major stuff. And the quality of the stuff that comes out is amazing. So anything being associated with him is uh, is pretty exciting for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially to be working with somebody that has, you know, because you got to come up with a lot of stuff if you're working for three different companies. That's not the same. It's got to be all original stuff. So No, absolutely. That's well, that's crazy. the deal. I think for Paizo, he's doing like module. He's focused on the okay. module editing. Right. But then um, for his, for Rogue Genius Games, um, I was going to bring this up a little bit later, but in relation to kind of what we were talking about with aquatic bad guys, villains, we were talking about Aboleth last time mm-hmm. yep. and how rad they are. So the um, uh, Rogue Genius Games just came out with uh, a supplement for specifically for Aboleth. And it's really? part of their, uh, yeah, it's part of their, um, what's it called? Monstrous, Monster Menagerie. Okay. And it's just the Aboleth. And because the Aboleth, they're, they're really cool, but they're a single, like, challenge rating. Yeah, right? Horrors so of you, the Aboleth you have, like, is what it's called, yep. Yep, yep. So we have uh, Horrors of the Aboleth, right? So it's got, uh, so the Aboleth, both in Pathfinder and 5th and in other editions, there's just the one creature, right? And right. then typically they'll make followers. Uh, the, um... Ulat Kai, I think they're called. Uh, the The common name for them is scum. Mm-hmm. Um, they're this race that followed them around during the wars way back in the day. But then once their their uh, <clears throat> empire crashed, then the scum kind of went off by themselves, and they're just kind of like the. I mean, their nickname is scum, so they're right, like right. <laughs> they're like the you know the the lower class citizens of any aquatic campaign, right? Uh, if they're around at all. 
So what Monster Menagerie does is it takes the Aboleth and it gives you this range of challenge ratings from like one or two, I think is the lowest one, up to 17 or 18 uh, of Aboleth related monsters, including this like small mind controlling little fish that the Aboleth theoretically evolved from all the way up to these like, I don't know, there's this thing and I, I have to look it back up again, but it's like, I keep thinking it's like this Tarrasque like equivalent of an Aboleth. Right, it's yeah. just enormous thing so l- luckily enough owen was kind owen and lj um his wife who's also does a lot of the production design for him um they gave me permission to be able to take a few of those things convert them to fifth edition and put them up on tribality soon so um, oh, i'll be able to put a, put a couple things up with some different challenge ratings up uh and then um i already posted the ulat kai as a or the scum as a playable race and a monster because I don't have those in the 5th edition. So even if you just want to use that with the standard Aboleth for the Monster Manual for 5th ed, you could still do something with that. Um, so really, really cool stuff. Anyway, I, I could I could wax poetic about Owen all day long. The guy's <laughs> sure. amazing. Plus, sure. he's also one of the nicest guys in the industry. Well, I'm going to say that a lot because there's a lot of nice guys that's, in the industry. That's what I'm experiencing but, as we get more and more into this. People are just super awesome and nice in this community. It's, it's yeah, unreal it's, to it's, me. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, there's a lot of like, unfortunately, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of talk about some challenging things going on in like the video game community and so on and so forth related to, you know, uh, opening games up to a wide variety of players and being inclusive. Right. Unfortunately, that gives a lot of feel of negativity to both industries. I have a lot of friends who work in the video game industry too. And, um, and that, that makes me sad because the actual people that I know that work in the industry, they're suit, they're incredibly intelligent gracious giving humble with the work that they do it's amazing it's just such an honor to be a part of it um i mean actually speaking of that like the other thing that was new is i had was doing some conversions for wolfgang for his uh, wolfgang bauer sorry from um cobalt press for his southlands pathfinder setting you were saying that the first episode you were with us yeah yeah well i was invited to judge a contest with them so they had their monarch of the monsters contest um and so i was (laughs) i was invited to no big no uh, big deal you know no big deal it's just it's just it's just wolfgang bauer and stephen winter yeah just being able Um, to judge with some of the biggest names in the rpg community yeah you know no big thing Um, so uh, honestly it's it's big enough that uh are are you familiar with the website io9 I am. I, I subscribe to them on Facebook, on Twitter, so I get all of their stuff all the time. It's great. So so the contest was, you know, quote unquote, big enough in our community that io9 published an article that included it. Mm-hmm. And one of their lines was... Yeah, I remember seeing that one. <laughs> Did you see that? Yep, yeah, I one of their lines that. was like, oh, the judges are, you know, RPG luminaries all. And I was <laughs> like, right, yeah... yeah. I think I just got caught in the AOE compliment of that. Yeah, because I saw I saw it posted. I read it, and then you sent me a Google Hangout message shortly after that. Did you like? Did I was you see like, what they wait, wrote? What? Like, Did, what just happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's totally. So I was I was uh, actually in a conversation for some people who may haven't heard of, like, say Stephen Winter. I was having a a conversation online about Fifth Edition and how Paladin's not having. Um, Paladins not having alignment restrictions is a beautiful thing, right? And people are like, right. oh, well, Paladins have to be lawful good and blah, blah, blah. So there was a there was a pretty much now classic article called Plethora of Paladins back in the day in Dragon Magazine that had a Paladin build for every single alignment. Hmm. So from chaotic evil to lawful good, obviously. Yeah, right. It's like it wasn't just the extremes. There was a true neutral Paladin and a neutral good and a neutral evil and a chaotic neutral. And it was it was amazing. 
And um, so I was reading through that article. I pulled it out of my old, excuse me, Dragon Magazine archive. And uh, I was flipping through it. And there is a there is a who's who at TSR article about <laughs> Stephen Winter in this plethora of paladins thing from yeah. the 1980s. And I was like, I, I, it was just like being hit in the face. I'm like, oh, my God, I was reading stuff by these guys. <laughs> In my basement, you know, and now gaming, you're a luminary right beside them. <laughs> Not so much with the luminary, but that was it. Was very sweet of them to yeah, have me yeah. on that list. <laughs> anyway, so it's been a it's been a pretty good um, it's been a pretty great um, year on that front, and and some of that's thanks to you guys. So I appreciate you guys yeah, having you were, me on. You were talking about how you know, and we said that we've had conversations about this back and forth a year ago. I don't think either you know us from the Dungeon Masters block or you doing your thing would have imagined. Yeah we would be at this point this year. Yeah. And so that's yeah, just, I just have to say thank you to you for helping us. And thank you to all of our listeners for, for getting us to the point that we're at, because it's yeah. just, it's a, it's an incredible ride. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, there's that, that kind of classic phrase, it takes 20 years to be an overnight success. Yeah. Right. Yep. <laughs> so, I mean, I've been gaming, gaming, as I said, since I was seven or eight years old, I mean, I've been doing this coming on four mm-hmm. decades now. So, yep. It's a lot of experience and it's a ton of fun and uh, technology in the last 10, 15 years has allowed a lot of us to expand our, our spheres of influence out and, mm-hmm. and how we can help people and talk to people. Um, back in the day, so so now we have websites like Tribality that I'm a part of where we get a bunch of DMs together and we're all just basically putting up our house rules and notes up, right? Sure. So other people can take a look at them and you know critique them or take bits and pieces of them, like say like... Oh, well, you know, so I put up like an Eldritch Knight, uh, an Eldritch Archer version of the Eldritch Knight for right. fighters, right? So my, my goal with that isn't to say like, use this as it is. Mm-hmm. My goal is to say, hopefully this will inspire you to do something for your game. Like, take the bits and pieces of it and put it together yourself, right? This is what, you know, we did 30 years ago. Like, we didn't have video games, <laughs> you know, to play role-playing games. So there was, if we didn't like something, we changed the rules. Right. But there, there's definitely a whole generation of people growing up with video games where they don't get to have that flexibility. If you're playing a paladin in WoW in World of Warcraft and a you don't like how paladin the paladin... Right, but yeah. if you don't, if they get nerfed or they get an upgrade or whatever, and you don't like it, you can't just say, "Oh, I'm going to house rule this paladin to be something more enjoyable for me." Yeah. You're like, "This paladin sucks, and I'm going to go play a warlock now or whatever." Right. So I think there's a there's a, a a training that some of us had when we were younger, going through these role playing games. We just house ruling was just the the way of the day, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping that people will take that information and be able to do something with it, right? But we didn't have that back in the day. There's a um, there's a guy in the industry I really wish I would have met. His name was Aaron Alston, and Aaron Alston he wrote a, some great Star Wars novels and such, but he also did some amazing stuff for uh, the Hero System and Champions. And one of the things he did was this was this campaign thing called um, it was called Strike Force, and it was basically what we do on Tribality, but in a supplement that came out in the eighties. It was about his campaign and how he ran it, and what cool things that he would do, and the things inside of it we could take it like his house rules and apply them to our game. And it's to this day, it's one of the one of the best supplements and least like. Um, I don't know, espoused, I don't know what the right word is, <laughs> appreciated supplements right, that right. has ever, that's ever been put out. Um, I still use stuff to this day that I pulled out of that. Um, he did something called blue booking again, back before tech, you get blue books like essay blue books from college yeah, and yeah. each, each player gets a blue book. 
and you can put data and information in them and then people can write a note to the DM in their blue book and hand it to you as the DM or the GM and you write the answers and you have this conversation back and forth instead of texting right. and you have this record of all this information and everything's inside of it. It, it may not sound like a big deal now, but that was mind-blowing high-tech right. you know, idea back in the day. The thing's chock full of that stuff. And a lot of us, there are a lot of us who literally learned how to run a long-term interesting campaign with character development from that one supplement. Hmm. So it, it, amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. I think we veered off quite a bit. Yeah, I don't know yeah. how we got on that subject. but uh, Talking about um, Rogue Genius. That's how we, we got We were talking it. about Rogue Genius. Yeah, exactly. You also, anyway. you also are now on Patreon, correct? So if people want to go and support you, they can go there as well, right? I do have a Patreon account. Yeah, thanks for thanks for mentioning that. I haven't yeah. done a lot of I haven't done a really big push for that, but um, there actually is quite a bit of material on there. I mean, clearly, uh, I put in links in the Patreon to the stuff that I post everywhere, whether it's on my website at GameChangeLives.com. But I, I, honestly, I haven't been able to do a lot of updates there because with two plus columns, I'm doing a tribality that's taking up pretty much all my time, and it and honestly, it gets more traffic. Yeah, so I want to yeah. put I want to put the stuff in front of people. I'm not egotistical enough anyway (laughs) to make make people have to come to my website to look for stuff. Like, just go to Tribality because I know there's a ton of other stuff that you'll be interested in as well as my stuff, hopefully. Um, But uh, Tribality has a Patreon and I have a Patreon as well. I do have, um, for $1 a month backers and $5 a month backers, I have some material on there that hasn't been posted anywhere else. Um, they're Gith Yankee builds. So okay. there's a, uh, there's a Gith Yankee stalker build. It's based on the, um, the sword stalker prestige class. Um, <clears throat> uh, God, I'm trying to think who wrote that. It was in the incursion campaign. I've talked about a lot for the, in dragon magazine, mm. uh, it, the, the silver swords of this, the Gith Yankee, um, if they ever get stolen, then these ranger prestige class, characters the sword stalkers would go hunt these people down who stole them and get them back i expanded the stalker out to be basically uh a bounty hunter so instead of just being specialized in just silver swords you can use it for any any ranger class but it's about individuals who go out to find lost things and people and bring them back so um it can be used for anything but it's inspired by the gith i have also for five dollar and over um subscribers currently there's a 10 page write-up of vlakith who's the lich queen of uh the gith yankee includes a couple of couple of artifacts she's a equivalent of a 25th level caster she's a she's a challenge rating 25 um she's pretty it it took a lot of took a lot of work on that anytime you get up past you know challenge rating five you got to do a little bit more thinking than usual for (laughs) some work yeah so it's the great thing like it's got a ton of unique legendary actions and lair actions um so if you're running if you want to run something like the incursion campaign what i'm trying to do is because i'm just such a gigantic fan of that campaign idea um and the flexibility of that you can put it in any campaign world um i'm trying to make it so that people can run that if they want um with with no no issue um Anyway, so there's, you know, there's just quite a bit of stuff over there, but that's, that's, uh, I, for right now, it's just Patreon people. So it, it may, I may end up posting that stuff sometime a little later. Um, so it might just be that Patreon members get, get this data months and months ahead of time of other people. Right. But for right now, it, it's just Patreon. So awesome. if you guys are 
up for coming over and supporting me. I would absolutely appreciate every. I don't think you every, would oppose. <laughs> every penny, every yeah, penny. Yeah. As you know, like that's the whole thing about crowdfunding. One dollar yep. from a bunch of people. It is, all adds up. Yep. Yeah. So uh, and also tribality. So if you like the stuff that all of us are doing at tribality, um, Sean set up a, a Patreon for tribality. If you love my stuff specifically, that's awesome. Um, I also encourage you to go over and support the Dungeon Masters block in hey, uh, their, their, their <laughs> Patreon as well. I do. I'm a proud. Uh, he does. I'm he a, is a silver a, dragon. I am a One proud dragon for sure. Yeah, yeah. Feared so, and and loved and, and beloved. And loved. Yes, yes, that is yeah. true. Yes. Um, so if you like all the stuff that you know, Brandis's, you know, history of the classes, and and uh, I, there's just so much stuff going on over there. If you just want to kind of spread the love through a bunch of us, then please, by all means, go over to Tribality. Yeah. And uh, yeah. do that as well. Yeah, definitely go and do that. That would be awesome to be able to support yeah. support you and, and Tribality in that way to keep growing and keep doing awesome stuff. So. So yeah, let's let's get to it, Rich. We got a lot to talk about because I, you know, last time <laughs> last time we we did an aquatic campaign. We know that you have a degree in marine biology, and yep. you you talked our you know you talked our listeners' ears off in, in amazing ways with all of the aquatic stuff that's going on underwater that we have no idea about <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, we I can't tell you I can't tell you how excited that makes me that you guys were because to me I was just talking about the stuff that's really yeah, interesting to me, yeah. but um, I you know I've listened to the podcast since, and you know. I guess maybe while we were talking, I was thinking like, oh, they're being so nice about how interested they are. But then when I went back no, to the yeah, listen, we... I was like, oh, no, I, th- I think they were actually. Oh, actually you, you took us to school in an amazing way. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was, it was great. So, you, I, know, so I know we got done with that episode and I think it was like either the same day or like a day or two later. You were like, hey, there's so much stuff that I wanted to cover that we didn't cover. Yeah. Well, it actually it actually came up because I started getting flooded with questions. And there were some of these questions were like, "Oh god, why didn't I cover that?" Yeah, That's sure, sure. such a great question, right? So I ended up writing some questions down and then it exploded into, "Well, I guess I still have a lot to to offer up yep. and some ideas and things." And um so yeah. And so we took a little bit of a break. We did the uh we did the players one which I heard from a lot yeah. of people was like one of their favorites, but we get that every single episode. Like, oh my gosh, this is our new favorite. Oh my gosh, this is our new favorite. Oh my gosh, this is our new favorite. So I'm, I'm assuming yeah. we'll get a lot more about this on the aquatic episode this time. Yeah. Um, but we got we, like literally, there's a lot of of questions within this outline, and and I think one of the one of the things that I think of, I remember going swimming as a kid at Grand Valley State yeah. University in a 15 foot pool. I remember jumping off of the high dive and going down to the bottom and feeling all of that pressure on my head. I was just yeah, like, yeah. why in the world do I feel all of this pressure? And so, yeah, like, yeah. you know, my last campaign, we did the the 250-foot dive with a black dragon. Like, why is it that, you know, we feel that pressure? Like, shouldn't humans explode that, that far down right. or implode or whatever it is? Yeah, I got that question, too. You and I were talking about that free diver guy that went 400-plus feet yeah. down to that blue hole and... There's another, the world record free diver, I think, goes to 700 Yeah, I think it was 700 and something, yeah. So uh, so one of the listeners had did the, done the math. So I, to, to catch people up in case you haven't listened to that previous episode, the basic premise is that at the surface you have one atmosphere of pressure, and every 10 meters down you go, you get another atmosphere of pressure. That's how much water is pushing down on you. Right. So, so when you have somebody that's free diving to 700 feet, that's 24 atmospheres of pressure 
that's that's a lot of pressure compared to what we're used to on the surface. Oh yeah. And so the question the question was like, you know, we were talking about, oh well, you know, when you have characters at a thousand feet or two thousand feet, you know, well they're just you know creatures that just adapt to being at that pressure. And people were like, wait a minute, that's I'm not you know doing the math here. That's an enormous like amount, how do things right? adapt to that type of pressure? Right. Yeah. Right. So so the the answer to that question has to do with hydrodynamics Mm -hmm. so um you've heard of like say uh so the brakes in your car are hydraulic brakes right and what that means is is that when you put pressure on the pedal there's brake fluid right in your brakes that push on the pads to slow your car down and the reason why we use a fluid in that in hydraulic systems is because water doesn't compress so if you have um if you have uh, air in a cylinder, right, that that uh, you can, uh, say, put a plunger down into, it's an airtight cylinder you put a plunger down into, you can actually push that plunger down quite a bit before that air gets, uh, gets compressed to a point where you can't do it anymore, right? When you have water, you can't do that. Like, uh, somebody will correct me that there will be some percentage of, you know, compression that you get, right. but but you can't compress water in that way. And our bodies are made up of this enormous amount of water. So when you're at a particular depth, when you go down and you're feeling that pressure in your ears and in your, in your face, right? That's all your sinuses. Oh, so that's, that's not your, that's not your arm. That's not your leg. It's not even your, your abdomen, you know, right? Right. It's the air pockets that are in your body. And we have these sinuses in the front part of front of our face. And then of course, in our, our ears as well. And so that's why you have to, you know, pop your ears, right? right. Equalize your ears. <clears throat> if you if your eustachian tube, which is the tube that connects um, basically your throat to the inner part of your ear on the inside of your uh, eardrum, if that's clogged, you're not going to be able to uh, equalize the interior part of the eardrum with the exterior pressure that you have from the outside air. So that's like if you have a cold and you go up in a plane, right? Yep. And you can't equalize your your ears; it's going to drive you nuts, right? You can't yep. open that up. So it's not it's not the body that's the issue; it's these air pockets. And we talked about that so, a little bit last time with the whale that dives down and how all of that air within their lungs. I forget exactly the the measurements about that, but we talked about right. that last time. How there's really like the air gets so compressed that there's it, it's almost like I forget what the percentage was. Do you remember what what that yeah. was when they dive down? So so. That's actually a, that's actually a, um, it's a dive piece of dive, uh, physiology that happens with, um, with marine mammals in general, but there's only so much research we can do. So it's, it's kind of a generalized statement, but the understanding is, is that when a marine mammal, like a, say a sperm whale, which actually dives to some pretty impressive depths for long periods of time, they, um, their lungs collapse. So they go down to about 1% of the volume. Mm. Um, I'm going to, I will talk a little bit later about the details of mammalian dive physiology and kind of how you can apply that to alien races and get that feel for like fantasy races and things Yeah, like these are things that we typically, you know, hand wave when we're creating races, but they can make some really interesting twists in how you describe what's happening with your characters and the other things around you. So that, that air pocket in their lungs, their lung pockets, they, they crush down to where they're almost non-existent. Because they're diving to 2,000 feet 
and hanging out down there for an hour, right? So, which also brings up the question, well, if that's the case, where do they get their oxygen from? Right. Right? So, we'll get into that in a little bit. But you get the general idea that it's it's the, 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 the fluid makeup of our body is not where the issue is. Now, you can have some physiological effects, like we talked before last time about how nitrogen in your air, in, in air, can dissolves under pressure. You know, um, uh, other types of gases, when they're under high pressure, they basically get pushed into the liquid because of those high pressure. So you can have physiological reactions, but the actual crushing force, if you spend time to be able to kind of uh, acclimate to those going down, just as if you were acclimating going up a mountain, mm-hmm. right? Take some time, you have to adjust to that. Then you can do shockingly well at these these depths that are outrageous um and you'll see that good writers will put that into novels or they'll put it into tv shows um i i've talked a lot about young justice which as is well you should anime. it's great yeah. oh you, you finally watched I, it, right? I watched the first season yeah i couldn't find the second season and they they recently took the first season off of netflix did you know that i yeah i they did but i, I did notice they put it back on. oh they did okay may i think i think I think people went insane. Sure, because they took it off. <laughs> as well, they, so, yeah. as well, they should. Yeah. Anyway, so while Mitch isn't here, you see is better. <laughs> I'm just saying, Mitch. Uh, Mitch is out helping his wife with a flat tire, so he might be joining us in a little bit. He might not be. So get the punches in now, all you Star Trek and I DC will. fans. I will. I will. No, 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 no. I'm going to make it very, very clear. I adore Marvel. Yeah. And oh yeah, yeah. I'm never. I'm. I'm not a. I'm not really a big kind of Star Trek or Star Wars person. Right. I will make a choice between the two. I actually, I literally learned to read on DC Comics, my brother's DC Comics, and so I'm always going to have a soft spot right, for DC. Right. But one of the things that where Marvel is just dominating, and rightly so in the movie industry, DC Comics dominates the animation field. Mm-hmm. Um, DC's animation is amazing. And the reason is because uh, DC Comics actually controls the animation, where Warner Brothers controls the films. Right. So the, the creative license that Marvel's uh, cinematic universe has because Marvel Comics owns those, if DC had that same control as Marvel, I, I would hope that we would be getting better quality live action films. Right. Anyway, uh, that's, a, that's a complete aside. But in the second season, there's a, there's a, a shape-shifting character called Miss Martian um, who is in the series. In the second season, they actually have uh, quite a few episodes that are pretty deep underwater. And... Uh, she rescues someone and that character is like, Hey, why are you so much shorter? Hmm. You're, you're, you're a bunch, you're really short right now. And she explains, Oh, I was out in my mermaid form and the water pressure had crushed me down huh. to, to compress my body down. Now, in this particular case, we're dealing with superhero physics, sure. which is so different than even, human physics, right? <laughs> obviously. I, exactly. And I do like the idea that, um, because of the malleability of her physical body i can i can believe that she would get compressed down and the fact that a writer just took a few seconds to put that kind of that kind of uh verisimilitude into the show that's the kind of quality that they do and it really helps you ground like we were saying last time you can tell me all kinds of crazy stuff but if you're consistent with it with that internal consistency and you have you 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 sound like you know what you're talking about then it helps me yeah, okay, so she can shapeshift and walk through walls. Why would I care that someone took the time to write in that pressure affects her in a particular way, right? Right. Why I they could have just ignored that completely and it would have been I wouldn't have really thought twice about it. Well, I would have thought twice. <laughs> about it. But no one else in their right sure, mind would think sure. twice about it. But they just took that time to do that kind of quality. And that, so that that pressure 
Yeah, as I say, that, yeah, that, that might be something interesting, too, if you have a shape-shifting character who dives down to add something mm-hmm. little, you know, some little thing in there like that, that it's like they're down there and you guys are down there and they're a little bit smaller than what you remember. That might right. be a really Again, interesting, that... yeah, a little bit interesting for your characters to experience. Right. Yeah. What happens if you have, like, a, a changeling from Eberron or a, or a doppelganger, like an aquatic doppelganger? Aquatic doppelgangers. Why not? <laughs> there you go. Shape change into anything. Yeah, right? Right, right. Yeah, like yeah, it could easily be adapted to underwater things. Yeah. Anyway, so that was kind of one of the one of the questions, and and uh, it was a good one, and I'm I'm glad that somebody brought it up. Another one had to do with um, something that's much more far ranging, right? Which was how do you communicate underwater? So we're talking about breathing water and like rings of free action and. How do you, you know, adapt to pressures and do all this kind of stuff? But one of the most challenging things to do underwater is figuring out how to communicate with everybody around. If you've ever been in a pool before, you thought it was a cool idea to try and talk to your friends when you were underwater. And I remember it was really, really difficult to try and talk with them. It was nearly impossible. Right, exactly. And so how do you make that work in a and d world? Right. And so there's all of this by by adding some of this kind of again this verisimilitude this this uh, reflection of the real world into your game, I I hope that it makes this underwater setting more interesting, right? Mm-hmm. There's more things to deal with than oh do I get a minus to my ranged attack, right? So I I, I decided recently after doing the podcast with you guys and then getting such wonderful supportive feedback from so many people. I've actually decided to uh, start putting together my own aquatic campaign. Hey, world. there we go. Yeah, thanks. So um, uh, at first I was like, why bother? Because Cerulean, I'm a big, I, I think I talked about Cerulean Seas for 30 minutes out of the two hours we talked <laughs> last time because it's it's just such an amazing setting and, and, uh, and the team over there did an incredible setting. But in the back of my head, I've been like, oh, well, why bother? Because they just did it. Right. Uh, then I realized, well... There's Forgotten Realms, and there's Greyhawk, and there's Eberron, and there's Dark Sun, and there's every other <laughs> surface fantasy world you can think yeah. of. And although Greyhawk and Greyhawk and the Forgotten Realms, people love them for different reasons, they're both Western European based yep. fantasy. So why can't there be just as many aquatic settings with the variety? Yeah. So Anyway, so in doing that, I had to think about the things that really bother me when we talk about things underwater, and one of them is this communication issue. And the first thing I think of when I think of communication, for me, is the um, uh, the way that marine mammals communicate, because clearly that's going to be a reflection of how surface um, PC races communicate. Like that's the that's the best analog that we have between the two, right? Mm-hmm. So how do they communicate? Well, we know that they, you guys have all heard, you know, dolphins making clicking and whistling sounds and those kinds of things. Yep. But if you, if, if you watch a, uh, a video of a, of a dolphin whistling and clicking, you'll notice that there's no air coming out of them. Yeah. There's no the air time. bubbles or anything or nothing like that. Yeah. Right. So when we communicate with our vocal cords, the air goes past our vocal cords, vibrates them. And then those, those sound waves get transmitted through the air. Right. <clears throat> well, marine mammals can't do that. One, it's a waste of oxygen, right? Because it would just be pouring out. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, the way that the hydrodynamic physics works between the water, surrounding water and air is, is very distorting. 
So the way that marine mammals make those sounds are inside their blowhole at the top of their body. Just inside that is an air chamber. So if you think of like a ball and cutting right through the middle of that ball is a, is a membrane that has a slit in it. And, uh, I, I was lucky enough back in the day when I got my marine bio degree from UC Santa Cruz, there was a researcher there. His name was Ted Cranford. And he was the, f- one of the first people to understand how this communication works. Um, and, uh, <laughs> He had, he had taken, uh, done MRIs of, uh, bodies of dolphins that had passed away on the beach, if I remember correctly, to kind of see what the internal structure was, right? And he dubbed them, uh, bunny ears and monkey lips huh. is the, uh, the official structure. So you have this membrane with a slit in it, and you can actually duplicate a similar effect that you hear with marine mammals by cupping your hands together over your mouth and then pushing air between your lips like this. Could you hear that yeah, at all? Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's what it is. Air is being pushed back and forth between uh, through this membrane and they control it. It's a muscular membrane just like your lips are. And they can uh make high-pitched whistling sounds like when you let air out of a balloon or they can make the you know the popping sounds that you just heard me make. Hopefully if you, people heard that. Yep. Um so all of that's in a self-contained air chamber. And what that does is, is it allows it to make all this noise, use the normal physics of air, right, carrying sound, but keeping it self-contained so that when it gets into the water itself, you can hear that from long distances away. So if you, like you're saying, you're in a pool and you don't have anything, you're just trying to talk and it's just air coming out of your mouth, you can't control what's happening there. If you have, though, like a, a diver's full face mask, Right. So it's not just a it's not, it's not just a mask over your eyes and then a, a, a little a, snorkel respir- yeah. respirator. Right. Yeah. You have the full face mask. They can have radios, you know, or and speak normally within the air uh, chamber of that mask. And you can actually hear them fairly well. There is some distortion, but uh, sound waves actually travel four times as fast underwater as they do during air with, in air, which is where some of this distortion comes from. So, um, the reason I bring this up is because when you think about like, all right, you, so I have a, so I have a ring of free action and a ring of water breathing, right? And I go underwater. Well, that's great. According to the rules as written, the raw. You can breathe you can, and you can walk around you can and, and you can, can move swim around and, and you can fight yep. and you can do all this stuff. But nothing is answering the question as to how am I talking to my coworkers. Yeah. So right? what happens when you're like, okay, I wanted this guy to flank from behind, and it's like, right. well, they just can't understand you. Like, it, yeah. that's a big there's, problem. Communication. Almost, yeah. Right. So that's something that we don't really that they don't really address in the rule books is how do you talk? Like, it, it's it's so fundamental to how your party works that they almost say like, look, this is so it would be completely non-functional for you to have an underwater game unless we just assume people can communicate. So let's not even think about it. Right. Let's not even draw attention to it, which I think it's certainly a way to go, but I do think that it's unfortunate because I think there's a lot of cool things that you can do to, uh, to make that feel more. Well, and part of the reason why, you know, part of the reason why I did an aquatic night was to experience some of those problems. Now this was one that I didn't think about, but if you're going to do any extended period of time underwater, it's one of those things that I would think you would want to explore a little bit because 
the whole reason you're kind of doing it is it's a it's a it's a different feel than what you're used to. Yeah. So if if you're gonna do something that's completely different, why not just embrace it? Like come up with things like this. And and in in our outline, we have a couple of you know ways that whales you know they communicate with with fins and stuff like that sometimes. And so you could come up with you know right. St- we'll we'll talk about that. But yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of stuff. But like in 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 still relation to this to the sound thing, one of the one of the one of the coolest mind blowing things that I heard about when I was getting my degree was something called the SOFAR channel. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have, for your listeners who are in the Navy, um, maybe doing uh, sub warfare stuff or anything like that, they've probably heard of this. Uh, it stands for the sound fixing and ranging channel. Um, <clears throat> or I think they call it like the deep communication channel or something like that. It is this fascinating piece of physics in the ocean in which the temperature and the pressure of the water come together in this fascinating way to create a channel that basically goes around the world that will carry sound for thousands of miles without dissipating. So the pressure and the temperature come together to basically create uh, the density difference between the top of this channel and the bottom of this channel causes a sound being made within that channel to bounce up and down kind of like light going through like a uh, fiber optic cable it doesn't it doesn't allow the light to dissipate this doesn't allow the sound to dissipate and um uh the navy uses it for a variety of reasons but there are even fin whales that we've recorded going down to the sofar channel and communicating likely with other pods of whales thousands of miles away. I mean, it's theoretically possible that uh, that a whale in the SOFAR channel, say in the Bermuda in the Bermuda kind of area, it's about a thousand meters down. So it's it's pretty it's pretty far down. And sometimes we right? just think that these animals are stupid and they just eat fish all the time. You know, they're actually yeah. they're actually coming up with some not coming up. I mean they're born with these crazy ways of communicating. I mean Hearing yeah. about fin whales communicating thousands of miles away, like yep. how cool would that be if you're some sort of fish race yeah. in a D&D world to say, yeah, normally like we just communicate with people that are right next to us or maybe, you know, 50 yards away by yelling. Yep. Just think about yeah. communicating well, normally a thousand miles away. Yep. And and when you're creating a surface, you guys have done a ton of great stuff on campaign building and, and Sean did a whole thing on campaign, you know, world building. Um, there are certain things you think about on the surface, like most civilizations will have to be next to a fresh water source of some sort. Mm-hmm. So your bigger cities will be on a lake or like a river or whatever. Right. So in, in Egypt, it's, you know, all on the Nile is, is critical to the survival. Well, you're underwater, right? So that's not really your issue. Right. You're, e- you're either salt adapted to absorb that, you know, the, the water you need from the surrounding water or you die. So like it's everywhere. So what do you base developing civilizations on? Well, there's two things that I think of. One is uh, uh, underwater, uh, basically the equivalent of jet streams that travel around the the uh, the world, because those str- jet streams can be used at certain depths as transportation. When you're dive to a depth where there's a where there's a regular you know uh, marine channel going. 
you can travel huge distances without having to expend much energy. Yeah, it's like, I mean, you, you so, kind of see it's it's a lo- probably a little bit glorified from what it actually looks like. But I think of the movie Finding Nemo with the with yes. the, with the the sea turtles that it doesn't look like they're putting much effort into it, but it's just this current that, that goes along yep. the Australian coastline. And, you know, that yep. that's exactly a, what I think of when you when you talk about the currents. Yeah. That's perfect example. And if you're in a fantasy world, you might be able to say that you can use some kind of magic to make these a little bit more it's stable. Like, it's like the highway of the ocean. Yeah, just as if you would say something like a, uh, you know, like in, in a sci-fi setting, these wormholes are stable. You could do the same thing in a fantasy world. But then the other thing I think of, which is a little less, you know, represented in film, is the SOFAR channel. If you have this kind of channel at a particular depth, you can communicate for huge distances without any kind of magic whatsoever. So so thinking about how these things work underwater can really make this feel of an underwater civilization more than just taking, you know, you know, Neverwinter, the city of Neverwinter, and plopping it underwater, right? Right. So these things make these things can make these things really much more. I just I just think of too. It's like you know in in the surface world you have to use you know spells like message or or something like that where to send it you know extreme amounts of of distance. Whereas underwater it's just like yeah this might just be a a normal thing for us to do. Like there's just you just dive down, go to the so far you know where you have to go, and there you go. You just communicate a thousand meters away. You know. Yep. Now there are some great, great limitations, great limitations to that too, which is that, you know, it only goes in a particular way, one, but two, you can't control who hears it. Right. And so that could be an interesting, you know, that could make campaigns really interesting. You never know who's using, it's like the old, uh, land, uh, the old, uh, phone lines that used to be on streets. Like anybody could pick up and hear what anybody else is saying, you know? Exactly. So do you have certain frequencies? Mm-hmm. Do you have certain times of the day that certain people have access to these channels? How heavily guarded Maybe. are they? Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's more than just like a, like a, it's not a really two dimensional situation, right? It's not just a cable that goes from one point to another. It's not like these underwater, you know, currents, these jet streams underwater. Um, it's actually a flat plane that goes throughout the world at different depths, depending on the temperature of where you're going. So it, it, in the closer to the equator, it's, it's down farther, close to a thousand meters. But I was just reading that, you know, when you get up to the, the higher latitudes toward the Arctic and the Antarctic, that that actually comes up quite a bit. Oh, really? So it can be up closer to the surface. So you could even have, um, uh, it, as you move farther north, uh, in your campaign world, uh, this can be a little more, um, <clears throat> you can have a civilization that's closer to the surface that's using these. You don't have to have like a race that's only dives down to a thousand meters to make that happen. Yeah. Right. But what's interesting is that we typically think of civilizations that's closer to, that are closer to the equator, um, kind of being more alive, I guess, in a way, like there's, there's so much more like light, um, color you know uh variety uh the warmth the heat the livingness right and as you go farther north we think of it as you know it starts getting colder there's not as much life it's totally not necessarily the case but it's kind of how we think in our minds yeah it's actually counterintuitive because we we think in our above water mentalities that 
Right, like exactly. But in the water, when you get closer to the colder areas, there's actually huge amounts of biomass mm. underwater. So larger, that's when whales have, you know, feeding migrations that go up to these areas because there are, I can't even wrap my brain around the, the biomass of krill that comes up yeah. in these colder waters as opposed to the warmer waters. Anyway, so by thinking about this, like, so, so how, kind of how can we, what can we learn from this to use in our races, right? Like, how do, how do we use communication on the surface for these <clears throat> in fantasy and science fiction settings? Well, in fantasy settings, the most classic thing is spell casting, right? Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me, verbal components in a spell are critical, which I think Mitch figured out when he was underwater trying to joust a black dragon on the back of a dragon turtle, yeah. right? Yep. Yep. So how do verbal components go? Like, I think in, uh, let's see. What is it? Oh, so think about Pathfinder rules. They have a thing where you have to make like a spell casting check if you're casting anything that involves fire for it to work, things like that. But they don't really talk about verbal components at all. And again, I think it's, I don't think it's necessarily, it might have been that they didn't really think about it, but I think they also don't want to think about it. Right. Because it, it, it it's a, it's a domino effect that affects so much stuff that if you think about it, you really got to start diving deep to get some interesting answers. Well, cause the thing is, when right? you, when you talk underwater, you can kind of hear it. Like you can kind of make sense of it if you're close enough. Right. But is that enough for the verbal component of a spell to work? Right. Is it, is it clear How- enough? Cause like the, the yep. signs and stuff that you would have to do, the, the, the motor part of it is you can do that. But how, how does the verbal part of that work, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And so that, that starts to get into, you have to think about how your magic system works. Mm-hmm. If you're doing kind of the, the standard Vancey and D&D magic world, is, are, is it the verbal words going into air that causes the verbal component to be ideal for a spell? Or is it simply the act of speaking mm-hmm. solidifying in your, excuse me, in your mind the, the intention? Of what it is that you're yeah. doing. Well, I just think if it's, if a, it's actually the auditory part of it, like if you actually have to hear it, maybe there's some NPC, some, you know, hermit guy that lives on an island that's figured out ways, you know, figured out, you know, more of the dolphin way of communicating to do spells yeah. underwater. And so maybe he's a guy that you have to find before you go down there to figure out, okay, how do, how the heck do I actually cast these spells in a completely right. different type of language that I've never used before. And so maybe he's figured right. that out. So you could add things like that in there too. Absolutely. And then uh, we were talking last time about how psionics underwater may be more appropriate right. to to a spellcasting, kind of a surface spellcasting world. And I think that in this world I'm developing, that's the direction I'm going to go in is that the surface world has spellcasting, which is fairly alien. It, it just feels alien to aquatic races. And the aquatic races, because of the physical limitations that are imposed by the environment that they're in, had to develop magic that was more psionic right. than these verbal things, right? So, um, so in addition to that, you know, spellcasting, even in a, in a science fiction setting, you also have this party communication thing that we're talking about. Now, in a sci-fi setting, hopefully you can kind of figure some of that stuff out because you've got tech to use. But in a, in a magic setting, you kind of have to think about it. Like, if you have a ring of water breathing and a ring of free action, like I was saying, that's great. But you can't really communicate. Now, mm-hmm. if you have the old school helmet of underwater action, that seems like it might yeah, be Yeah, maybe okay. you have that or air pocket have... in there that would allow you to say the verbal components, yeah. Exactly. Is that what it does? Does it seal your head in? That seems pretty likely. Mm-hmm. There's also a Pathfinder spell that's like 
air bubble or head bubble or something where you get this bubble of air around your head that you can breathe. <laughs> I feel like that's right? really so risky. That... Just one needle prick and <laughs> you're dead. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm assuming it's I'm a assu- pretty yeah, I'm assuming. magical yeah, bubble, yeah. <laughs> I, I would think. Um, so, but you get the idea. Like now you're starting to think like there isn't just like, well, can you breathe water or can't you breathe water? And then that determines whether or not you can use spells. Breathing the water and using the spells is almost completely unrelated. So now you have different types of technology. So there's different gradients of how you're in water. So your fighter, maybe your fighter's fine with using, you know, water breathing ring and ring of free action or whatnot. Um, and we'll get to in a minute why rings of free action bug me. But, um, <laughs> but your spellcaster may need a completely different type of, of, uh, of thing. And in addition to spellcasting, what about your bards? And what about your fighter battlemasters or warlords? Like they need to communicate verbally with what's going on. Yeah. Now you might, maybe you'll develop, like we were talking about hand signals yep. or other types of communication, which we're, let's just get into that now. So any non-sonic types of communication, right? So how do other creatures underwater communicate? Uh, cephalopods like, um, squid and octopus, stuff like that. Octopuses. They communicate in some ways with chromatophores and octopuses have shape changing abilities mm. as well that they use. By the way, technically, technically the multiple of octopuses of octopuses like is octopi- octopuses. Is it really? It's not octopi yeah, like so it, many people think. No, no. It, it has to do with the, it has to do with the Greek or Latin roots gotcha. or something. Um, it, the thing is that it, it's so commonly accepted as octopi yeah. that at this point it just, it is. just, so it it's just funny. flows off the tongue a little bit easier. It it does. I tend to use octopuses just because I'm used just, to it. So you'll... just to spite the world, Rich. That's why you. Do I guess. <laughs> I'm an I'm an angry angry writer. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so they use chromatophores. So these these kind of uh, these color creating uh, skin cells, which could be interesting for uh, an underwater yeah. race. Bio bioluminescence, obviously, lights to communicate. Yep. Now that has some great advantages and disadvantages. Perfect in the dark, right? Not so great but... in the light. <laughs> Not so great in the light. It's great when you perfect, get down perfect. below that thousand meter mark where there's no light right. that penetrates anymore. But yeah, yeah, which is before great. that, also, how does that work? Everybody can see yep. you, but then you get into this balance. Like, oh, well, I see this light blinking over there. It might be food, or it might be an anglerfish that's bigger than me trying to get me to go over yep. there to see if there's food. Yep. Right? <laughs> right. So, are you um, being the hunted or are you hunting? <laughs> And that exactly. Point, yeah. Exactly. Then it becomes like a whole different dynamic, yep. right? Chemi- chemical communication, obviously. So the same kind of similar thing of like pheromones on the surface. Yep. Some fish use chemical communication in the, in the water as well. Um, when you get into a sci-fi setting, there's radio communication. And I, there was a, there was a, uh, there was a, uh, TV series that had like one season called, I think it was called Surface. It was this, um, it was, kind of in the era of uh, lost and these yeah, other shows I where there's some mystery that, going yeah. on and we didn't know what was going on as the season goes on we'll figure out the mystery mm-hmm. um i love the general idea of it but the very first episode turned me off completely because they had a woman in a in a uh, who's a marine biologist and a researcher who was in a diving bell and she was talking about how she was seeing this creature on radar well Radar doesn't work underwater. Radio waves actually don't penetrate underwater. Standard high-frequency radio waves don't penetrate water at all. That's why we use sonar. So uh, there are very low-frequency radio waves that can go maybe like 30 meters or so. 
And then there's extremely low frequency waves and they can go hundreds of meters, but they're the having to build an ELF extreme low frequency transmitter and receiver is extremely difficult to do. So when you're talking about like a, like a, a submarine, they can't be a thousand meters down and pick up the phone and radio call home. Right. right. They have to come to the surface. Typically they, they pop a buoy up that can project the radio signals that they need or pick up things. Right. Um, without ha- the whole ship having to come up out of water. But it's something to really to, to, to keep in mind. If you're doing a high tech setting, you can't use standard radio underwater. Right. And the other thing, both in fantasy and sci-fi is kind of telepathy. Right. So these are all non sound producing ways of communicating. Which I think that's what that's a lot of how Abolus. Yeah, there's again talk, isn't it? Do they use? Yeah, telepathy? again, they're, they're psionic creatures, right? So, mm-hmm. so uh, in most fantasy D and D focused fantasy worlds, psionics are supposed to be something rare, whether above the surface, below the surface, or whatnot. But I, I love the idea of having this boundary between the surface world and the underwater world, in which their their chosen forms of magic are almost completely different technologies, right? Magic versus the psionics. And having right. having some psionics above the ground, but and and those people who use them be very very strange. And having some magic underground or underwater, but again having it be this strange unique thing that very few people can can manage to do. Right. So um, these are things that you need to think about creating an aquatic race or or even using spells. You know, your spell allows you to do certain things. Water breathing allows you to do certain things. Right. You can assume that, say, the new Alter Self spell for 5th edition has this aquatic version of it. You could just assume that that aquatic version allows you to do other things, like it also adapts your eyes from the, from the surface to underwater so you can see without disadvantages. It may also give you some kind of way to communicate, but you kind of need to decide what that is. Does it give you sonic communication? Are you, does your vocal cords become a self-contained thing like the... Um, communication of a marine mammal and does that mean that you can communicate much more clearly than your wizard who's cast water breathing on everybody and no one else can talk so that creates these interesting dynamics within the party itself right so let's talk about like we were talking earlier about like this is kind of how we've taken both marine mammal communication techniques and other you know uh, underwater animals communication techniques and kind of adapted them and and see how you can flavor that take that take that one thought seed and dig a little deeper, right? Do the, the writer mechanic, the writer technique of like, all right, well, I have this thing. Typically, so a lot of writers refer to something called the cliche shelf. Like when you're mm-hmm. thinking of something for your story, the first probably three ideas that come up to you, come up to you that occur to you are all straight from the cliche shelf. So you yep. have to keep pulling, right? So till you find that one dusty. Yeah. Just the idea that hasn't been used yeah, well, before. Yeah, well, you're also accepting the fact that that's never going to happen. All ideas have been used right, before, yeah. but... Or that hasn't hasn't been used for a yeah, while. Yeah, or is just yeah. being used in a, in a way slightly differently than, than other people, right? right? Yeah. So you want to keep digging. And so when you decide, when you figure out like, oh, well, communication is a problem, it causes this domino effect, but it can create this really interesting thing for people if you keep digging down deeper, right? So... Again, marine mammals have this parallel to us on the surface, and, and marine mammals are really what drew me to marine biology because they're they have all of these same they have all the same 
advantages and disadvantages that we do on the surface, but their environment is is imposing these things on them that would kill us, right? right. That has killed us. So how do yeah. how do marine <laughs> yep. mammals that can't breathe water? How do they take the advantages and limitations that we have and adapt them underwater, right? And by looking at that, it's a clear parallel to how we can use it for races that are underwater, right? Particularly science fiction races that have maybe are genetically engineered humans or um, kind of the now classic uplifted dolphin, like from David David mm-hmm. Brin's Star Tide Rising and, and uh, Blue Planet also has uplifted cetaceans as well. Um, so how to look at that and how it affects, you know, what we do with our races. So one of the, another question I got was just somebody just randomly asked me, they'd heard of something called a mammalian dive reflex. And they asked me what that was. And it's a, it's a great question because in marine mammals, that's one of the main reasons why they can survive underwater better than we can. And the marine mammal dive reflex, which incidentally also occurs in humans to an extent, when a marine mammal dives, it'll do the things like we talked about. The collapsed lung goes all the way down to almost nothing. They, You're right, 1% or yep, whatever it was. They yeah. shunt their blood from their extremities to their core, so they're not wasting excess uh, oxygen usage for their limbs. And uh, typically, it also reduces their heart rate significantly, right? Yeah. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. So, so think about it this way. The parallel in humans, you know, almost everybody's heard of the story, uh, stories of, of someone who's fallen into a frozen lake for 20 minutes, frozen under the ice until somebody could get them out. And then they were able to be revived and have no neurologic deficits after 20 minutes without oxygen, right? And right, yeah. in the medical fields, um, for those of you who didn't know, my, my secret identity is as a critical care nurse um, here in San Diego. And one of the things that we use uh, and are using more commonly... Your secret, secret <laughs> identity is... <laughs> That's awesome. Um, the uh, One of the things that we use pretty commonly, uh, in uh, at least in my hospital now, is... Uh, is uh, hyperthermia, uh, excuse me, hypothermia treatment. So when somebody has a heart attack, and in some cases stroke or liver damage, there are various ways we can use this. We drop their body temperature down. We, we, we intubate them. Uh, we, we put them on a ventilator for breathing. We get them heavily sedated. And then we drastically reduce their, their internal body temperature, which causes this effect. Um, blood gets shunted, you know, to an extent away from limbs that are not critical um, it gets more oxygenation and things to the heart and the lungs. Um, typically, they become bradycardic, which is that their heart rate slows down as a side effect of this. Um, all these things reduce uh, metabolic oxygen consumption so that the heart could heal itself after, say, uh, a heart attack, right? Or the brain can get time to take care of itself after uh, a major neurologic event. So it, it's something that actually happens in humans to an extent. And there was a movie I mentioned last time called The Big Blue, which was about free divers. And the main character seems to have this mutation, basically, um, if we're talking Marvel comics, of have exactly having this, having this enhanced marine mammal diving reflex in, in him that he was just born with this ability to do this. So again, when we're talking about it though, if you, if your lungs collapse down, what, what happened to the oxygen that you were breathing at the surface, right? Well, part of the reason yeah. the lungs the lungs collapse down um, as well, not just because of this pressure issue we were talking about, but also remember we were talking about how when you have nitrogen in the, in the oxygen 
mix that you breathe, the air that you breathe, then under that pressure, that nitrogen goes into your bloodstream and can cause nitrogen narcosis and other things, right? The bends. Which is, yeah, it's the bends, yeah, because you just basically keel right. over. So basically the lungs collapse so that, that that nitrogen exchange doesn't happen. So they don't have that problem. And so that just naturally happens in these marine mammals when right. they do that, yep. correct? And then the way that they get their oxygen is from hemoglobin and something called myoglobin. So hemoglobin in your bloodstream, these red blood cells are traveling through your, your bloodstream. When they're oxygenated, they, they look red, right? That's why, you know, the stereotype artery right. has red blood and the vein has blue blood, right? So hemoglobin yep. is the structure that binds oxygen. Well, there's an equivalent of that in the muscles called myoglobin. Now, it can hold less oxygen, but it's kind of the reason why if you're a sprinter, right, and you're on a track team and you run the quarter mile, right, the 400-meter dash, about 30 mm -hmm. seconds into your run, something typically called a bear climbs on you, right? Like, you, you're like 30 seconds. <laughs> your you're legs like, just you're get like, tired ah. and you're starting to cramp a right. little bit. And the reason, and you're breathing heavy. The reason yeah. is because you've now used up all the myoglobin stored oxygen in your muscles and you're now purely working off of the hemoglobin that you're bringing in from breathing, which is why you're breathing heavier, right? So you're trying to get more oxygen mm -hmm. into your hemoglobin, into the bloodstream to make up for the fact that you've now used up all your reserves for the myoglobin. So the blood volume in marine mammals is four times that of humans. The hemoglobin in that blood is at least double that of humans. And then the amount of myoglobin they have in their muscles is like 10 times what we have in humans. So they basically stop using their lungs, at period, and they use this massive stores of oxygen that they already have in their bloodstream, right? Which is why we see them dive down and we may never yeah, see right. them again. They go Whereas humans, it's like if you don't come up in a minute and yeah. a half, somebody's got to go looking right. for you because that's pretty, that's pretty all crazy. Yeah. Building up lacto acid and all this yep. other kind of stuff. Because we, we don't have that natural way of... of shutting our lungs right. off to use you know we don't have that 10 times myoglobin exactly. and so again how do we use all this stuff comes back to it, it, it's super it's super cool i love it but how do we use it in our games right all of this stuff mm -hmm. really just reflects how to develop your alien and fantasy races and get those feelings or forget alien and fantasy races what about your superhero game right or your modern modern game where you're having genetic engineering or whatever you're you're doing like how do these things work Right. And what happens? What if you are a human that has twice or three times the hemoglobin and 10 times the myoglobin, but you don't go you don't go underwater that often. So you have your character like Aquaman or whatever. Right. Something somebody or, yeah. or Namor. So you have this character who has all this stuff underwater. Well, how does that affect you on the surface? Well, you have all these huge reserves of oxygen that you can use for other super powered stuff. Right. So taking taking that and, you know, expanding it out and seeing how that affects you in different environments as well. Right. Um, anyway, so that, that's those things. The other thing, one of the, another thing that you have to deal with when you're underwater is the idea of healing, right? How does healing work? Mm -hmm. Is it the same? Right. So how do fish heal cuts and all that kind of stuff. And you know, when you're dealing with a fantasy world, it's pretty magical. So you don't, you just kind of do a magic healing, right. But you still want to have some kind of non-magical effect, right. Dolphins and fish yep. clearly sharks don't clearly don't have doctors to go to. So how do they do these things, right? Well yeah, and if you don't if you don't have, you know, if if you're 
a human that's spending an, or an X amount of time underwater and you can't do the verbal component right. or, you know, you open your potion that has healing. Right. Drinking potions. It's just going to spill that's out into the ocean. <laughs> like it's, I mean, it's, hey, you open it. Well, now you barely got any of it and you're inhaling salt water. Like how does, you know, so how does healing work for, yeah. you know, I mean, we can, we can talk about alien races. We can talk about if you're like a Kuatoa or, right. or, you know, Shahugan or whatever you want to be underwater. Right. But what happens with healing when you're a human that's underwater? Because actually... that's going to cause some, some difficulty. Yeah, you just you. opened the door for me because I actually hadn't really gotten to the point of thinking about potions. Like, again, how do you develop these things? We're always focused on like, oh, well, how do I get my two-handed sword to work underwater, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're already a race that lives underwater, why would you ever have developed a two-handed sword in the first place? You just wouldn't. Right. I just don't see that happening, right? So so would you have developed potions? Or would you have developed something else that that isn't a liquid that gets diluted by other liquid when you pull it out? Now, it could be... Or is there some sort of like, you know, I was thinking about this because I, you know, as we started talking about doing a second aquatic campaign, I was like, I wonder if there's some sort of like rare resource or weed or something like that, that, you know, I could create in my world that would have those kind of healing right. powers, you know, or is it something that you have to like cross pollinate underwater or, you know, however right. that works to create that type yeah. of thing, you know, something that you chew on or something that you can, you right. Know, so your yeah. your alchemy or your uh, say almost kind of shamanistic you know waking up of the healing properties of some plant those are all kinds of things that again can make your world a little more interesting and richer and isn't just trying to parallel exactly what's on the surface and shove it underwater right right if you do do that though it might be interesting to have it's not like okay so you have a potion of healing but that potion of healing is in a different kind of vessel or device that's got like a one way straw or it's mm-hmm. got something that you or or you have to roll like some sort of check in order to be able to drink it without it spilling out into yeah. the ocean, you know, or I mean, there's there's a ton of different. Right. Things you exactly. Do. You have to, you know, it, again, it, it's challenges that as a DM or a GM, you can throw to your players without, you know, if you, if you put even just a little bit of this so you don't make them completely worthless, but you put a little bit of it in and make them think about these things in a different way. It can be pretty interesting. Right. So you have this mm-hmm. potion, but how are you going to go about drinking it? Because as soon as you open it. Right. It's going to get diluted. So, right. Yep. So, <clears throat> or does it, or does it not? I mean, if you have a 1d8, does it not do 1d8 right. anymore? Does it do 1d4 or, you know, or how do, does, or yeah, do nothing? How does, how does, yeah. Or do yeah. nothing? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Cause I would imagine if you, if you are a air breathing creature that goes underwater, you're, you're thinking mainly of, I need to make sure I have potions. I don't know what's down there. And then you get down there and it's like, oh, well, actually, you try it for the first time and you're like, you know, they're like, all right, I'm going to roll for health. I'm going to roll to get my health points back. And you're just like, nothing right. happens. And then there's just this moment of like, oh crap, this place is even worse right. than I thought. You yeah. Know? As a DM, you, you so. decide how these things work. Maybe you, maybe you provide them with an underwater air pocket that they can get to. But that's, that's also tactically interesting because you could basically only heal when you get to that air pocket, either because of the verbal components or the potions or whatever. Yeah. So you're having this interesting limitation of like, God, why are we not, hopefully not, why are we down here? But, but while we're down here, this is a much different, you know, our 15th, 15th level superheroes on the surface are suddenly having challenges that we've never run into before. Most of the notes that I have down here for us to talk about are all come from questions, you know, that other people, that people asked after the last podcast. 
And uh, we talked about um, smell. Remember, we were talking about the shark and how its its powers of of smell are not the the thirty foot you know scent special yeah. ability. And oh, yeah. hey, Rich, Rich, Mitch is Mitch is back. Hey. So get all of your get all of your DC stuff out before he. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm back. Hi. Marvel is better. DC Hi. sucks. <laughs> all right, have I covered it? I'm all? putting away all my DC notes. Any <laughs> more yeah, beast Aquaman? He sent me out. a uh, he sent me a secret a secret outline that we've been oh, going yeah. through, and then uh, we're, we're, back. we're back. We're we're on sense. Say it to my face, Rich. It's good to have you back, and it's good to be back myself. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you were able to come back and join us. Sorry to interrupt the flow. Let's let's jump right back in. Yeah, no I'll, worries. Uh, so I'll comment when when I do. Yeah, so like I, what I was saying, like we we're basically answering a lot of questions that people had brought up post the other podcast that were really fascinating um so but one of the questions as i was saying was the idea that you know where we talked about smell but we didn't really talk about any of the other senses at all right (laughs) you know so you know touch touch is just what it is but hearing and sight and there are other senses that we don't even use on the surface that have evolved with uh you know yeah there's 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 one that i'm really looking yeah fascinating stuff and again it's this idea i was talking about earlier about how this environment um puts pressure on uh on the uh the the creation or the the evolution of these of these creatures right so our marine mammals are really the exact same as us on the surface but their environment has forced them to make certain certain changes that we haven't had to and vice versa so uh, one of the things and we brought this up earlier is that for hearing sound travels four times faster in water than air because of the density right that's crazy. So when you're, when you, so again, Mitch, we were discussing the idea that, so you have a, you have a ring of water breathing and you have a ring of free action, mm-hmm. right? Well, most people, yeah. most people think, well, that's all I need. I'm good. <laughs> Except for the fact that you don't have any way to communicate. He- yeah. Hearing is entirely distorted. Your eyesight, which is, you know, we'll I'll talk about under senses here too, is also entirely distorted. Yep. Right. And you can't you can't speak. So not just communication, but you can't do things like depending on how you run your Vancy and magic system, you can't cast your spells with verbal components. Yeah. So you yep. need significantly more than a ring of water breathing and a ring of reaction. You can. Yeah, I'm sure Chris uh, shared a bit about how we ran into that in his yep. campaign. Yeah, just we, like, it took us probably in the like, water and like, oh wait, exactly. <laughs> well, how do I do we this? Didn't, we didn't prepare at all for this. We just had to yeah. go. And I and I tried not to be a complete jerk. I pointed out, oh, you guys are wearing armor. Probably shouldn't be wearing armor. Yeah. yeah and yeah, I tried yeah. to not be a complete jerk and point out that one of the guys is actually pretty much made out of stone and would just yeah, sink yeah. like a rock. Yeah. I was like, ah, I'll just let it fly but yeah i remember with my spellcaster i was like uh how do i do this and having to look up all the rules and i found some place online that said oh in 3.5 you can roll a spellcraft check and cast a spell cast underwater fire. and i'm just yeah cast fire or anything yep. underwater and i'm like it doesn't really explain how logically that happens but that's the yeah. rule, and we're already bogged down. So I'm like, all right, I guess I can do it. So 15 minutes was yeah. enough time looking <laughs> that up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we had just talked about that, like that that thing. With yeah. Community. So go back and listen to your podcast. I will. I will. <laughs> so, um, so, so hearing, just like with communication, if you just have your ears going underwater, even if you have someone who can communicate so for example if they do have that say a full helmet of underwater action or that spell that creates the air bubble around your head that allows you to speak into the bubble and people can hear you 
that still has to go from water on the outside of your eardrum to translating into the, you know, the inside of air pocket of your ear. So there's this distortion that happens with hearing as well, just as much. And just like with the way that, that marine mammals communicate by having this self-contained pocket inside of their own body that they don't expel air through, their ears are also like that as well. So when a, when a dolphin echo or a, or a whale uh, echolocates, they create a sound with that uh, structure I was talking about. That sound goes out, bounces off a bunch of objects, and if you can imagine a bottle, what a bottlenose dolphin looks like, right? They've got that mm-hmm. really long lower jaw that sticks out. The, the sound actually comes back and hits that jaw and it gets translated through the bone right into their, where their ear mm-hmm. is. So if you take a, uh, if you guys are into music at all, if you take like a, a tuning fork and you whack a tuning fork yep. and then you place it on your chin, it does the same thing. That sound wave goes right in through your bone, right into where your ear is. I've used so tuning sounds- forks a lot because I played the violin, but I've never stuck it to my jaw. I might have to go get my <laughs> instrument back out and try that. It's really interesting because it sounds different, but it also sounds clearer in some ways because it's being translated through your your. Just like when you're when you're talking to yourself or you're talking like I'm talking now, mm-hmm. I hear inside my head something different than you guys are hearing because of. You know the vibrations. Yeah, I've always wondered why. Head. I've always wondered why the way I sound when I talk is different than when I hear myself editing a podcast. That was the weirdest thing for the first little while. Like, yeah, do I really I sound like that? Oh yeah, I used to hate right? myself. Now I'm just like, eh, whatever. Know, it's right? it's second like nature yeah, me, now. But me too. Yeah, but that's because those vibrations are are not just going out your mouth and coming into your ears. They're they're vibrating through your bone structure, which is actually a really uh, a quite good con- conductor of these sound waves, right? So when you when a when a dolphin echolocates, they send the sound out. It comes back in uh, through the bone and then right into the ear. That's not really you know huge ear holes like we have on the outside of our head. It's again this self contained self contained device. So again, how do you use that underwater? Your ring of water breathing again isn't really going to help that much. Um, but if you do again have say like a helmet or something that's self contained, when you're thinking about these ideas then that helps you understand, you know, kind of how the the feel, I guess, of what you're doing is different underwater than it is above water. Could have some limitations. May just be it may just be something that you describe, right? To get that feel to be different. And speaking of echolocation, I the echolocation is freaking ridiculous. <laughs> it's so it's so amazing in a way that we can't even grasp. Like echolocation is such a powerful tool for marine mammals that you can't probably even have it the way that it normally works in a game because it's just too OP. <laughs> Does it, is so, echolocation like, cause I think bats use echolocation too, right? right? Above, they does do. it work the same way below the yep. water and above the water? It does. The okay. basic concept is the same, but because remember sound travels four times faster right. in water than air. When, when a bat does, I'm shocked that bats can even do it, but not just bats. There is a there is a great episode of uh, the podcast This American Life. I believe it was This American Life. It might have been Radio Lab, but it was called The Batman, and it's about a it's about a, a a man who is blind. But apparently, there's a pretty common thing that happens with people who are blind. As they're growing up, they make this cl- they learn to make this clicking sound, and it's pretty common that people who can hear 
I mean, sorry, people can see, find it incredibly annoying, one, but also just feel like, oh, it's just some <laughs> kind of tick. Yeah. Right? But little kids will do yeah. this naturally and learn to read this echoing. Yeah, it was this American but be- Life that did was it? it. Yeah. yeah it was this because they're because they're so socially ostracized for doing this behavior they never develop it into a skill but this guy apparently did and i'm sure everybody has different you know potentials to develop this skill but this dude rides bikes and hikes in the wilderness and like does all of these things doing this echolocation effect and the fact that you can do it in air is pretty amazing to me because under water with you know the density of, of water and how it travels faster it's much more clear so the uh, my my impression is that a dolphin or or whale's echolocation abilities are much more detailed than say a bat, but the idea is is still the same. You're sending out a sound wave of some sort. Well, there's two different types of sonar. There's passive and active. So active sonar is you send out a a, a sound wave and and the sound comes back to you as after it bounces off an object. But passive sonar is a little bit more like what maybe Daredevil has. Mm. Like he doesn't really make clicking noises when he's sneaking up on somebody. He just you know what I mean? feels, does he feel the sound that's coming off of them? <laughs> that is, that awesome. what, right. is that more so what the, passive is? The ambient, the ambient noise around him bounces off of things and he reads that ambient noise. So it may be, it's not that he's like, oh, I hear that person walking specifically, but the person could be standing there doing nothing, but say a wind chime is going off out the window and that sound is bouncing off of objects and he's reading excuse me, what that sound is doing in the room and creating hmm. a picture for himself. That's passive sonar. That's at least what um, and, he does in the comics. In the new TV show, he just sees fire everywhere, apparently. <laughs> well, and, and I kind of like that idea because what they've done is they've, de- they've made it more than one sense. Yeah. So it's not just sound. He also has this incredible enhanced tactile sense that he can read newspapers with his fingertips mm-hmm. and all this kind of stuff. So it would be the same thing, but basically happening with error currents and sound, hmm. right? And smells and taste even, right? For him, he's getting all of these things flooding into his body and his brain is trying to interpret a picture of all the data that's coming into his head. And I like the idea of how they visually represented that in the show as not just being like uh, what we think of maybe a generic 3D picture of a sonar, but all of this stuff that only he is uniquely trained to be able to understand. It was definitely interesting, especially it fits with the daredevil concept. I just think it wasn't explained that well in the show for that, you know, knowing what the comic book that you refer to it, it didn't seem like it was explained that well. It kind of just slipped by, but that's my own opinion of what I saw in the show. (laughs) Oh, okay. That's fair. That's fair. You give a good explanation. They should have just had you come into the show and been like, (laughs) like, like those old school, like somebody like the screen pauses and like Rich Howard walks out Rich and he's like, hello, I'm Rich Howard. <laughs> I would like to explain I, you to you notice. how echolocation <laughs> works. I like this. Uh, I like this. Let's start a campaign. There we Marvel, go. Kickstarter. Marvel, uh, MC, MCU hire Rich <laughs> But we have to edit out all the DC talk beforehand or otherwise they won't hire you. Oh, no. You got to know your enemy. Hey, there you go. You That's know true. Your enemy. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta know your enemies. Yeah, I'm, I know that. Yeah, keep, keep your friends close. So, keep your enemies closer, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so in typically in say Pathfinder in uh, three in five, fifth edition and three point five and whatnot, they they represent echolocation as like one hundred and twenty feet of blind sight or something, right? Or blind sense, um, or sometimes it technically. Uh, anyway, it, it's one hundred and twenty feet of just being able to tell where things are. But if you take, if you 
these experiments have been done. If you take 200 pencils and 199 of them are wood and one of them is plastic and they look exactly the same otherwise and you put them on the bottom of a pool, a dolphin can immediately tell you which one's plastic, which one's wood. <laughs> if you take... Just, just you, they based would off take, of how the sound reverberates back to them? Exactly. If you take, if you take uh, cylinders of metal, right... And they're different, and you drill a hole through like a cylinder of metal, right? You drill, do, drill a hole that's exactly the same diameter, same diameter size of metal, right? Drill a hole down the middle of it so it has some kind of reverberating assistance. And you put six of them in front of a dolphin, and you tell them, find me the bronze one versus find me the gold one versus find me the silver one. If they've been trained to understand what those density differences are, they can tell you if they, if they look exactly the same. They can tell you, they can find the one that you're looking for instantaneously based on the sound coming back to them. They can, they, they've seen pregnant dolphins being echolocated at by other dolphins who are clearly taking a look at the child. Right? So, so these things are, this is clearly not just blind sight, right? This thing is, a, is amazing. And it also has a range of significantly larger than just 120 foot range. And now, now take that concept, Chris, and put it in what we were talking about, about the SOFAR channel. Yeah, how you can travel basically anywhere in the world. Right. You That's can, crazy. you can take this, there's a depth, there's a depth, uh, that you can, you can make these sounds, and the sounds, because of the pressure and the temperature, means that the sound doesn't dissipate that quickly, and the sound can travel for thousands of miles, right? So maybe so, you, maybe you do that, because we were talking about how that, you know, your messages might be hijacked. Maybe you send out this echolocation before you send out the message yep. that you want to, to see if anybody's actually in there listening to what you might be saying. Sure. There's all kinds of things. Yeah, it's do. crazy. That's a great, that's a great idea. Well, I was thinking so, too, like this, this echolocation, like you said, it might be broken for players, you know, to have, maybe it's something that, you know, one of the players, if they're, you know, they don't have, you know, if whatever race they are, doesn't have echolocation, maybe they have a, you know, pet or, you know, a, a uh, companion that walks around with them that have echolocation that you have to right. work on training them for these types of things too. That could be a really interesting Absolutely. character concept as well. Yeah, absolutely. But, and see, it's, it's interesting for me because when I'm, when I run an aquatic game and somebody has echolocation, it's very difficult for me not to give them say advantage on all their medicine checks. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right. Or like, yeah, it says 60 feet, but screw that. It's, it's, you can see the whole area. Right. Right. Um, or you, how about this? Somebody's, you got a dwarf or I don't know how to, you got a half elf disguised as a human, right? Well, what, what other physiological differences besides pointed ears are inside, you know, the race of one of these creatures? Like how does an elf's elf's lung or a half elf's lung look different than a human's? Like, like these are things that theoretically you could get through. What about illusions? Are illusions tactile? Cause if they're, if they're fully tactile, then I guess maybe an echolocating pulse would maybe not be able to tell, I guess. But again, we're not talking about just bouncing off the outside frame of, say, uh, an illusionary wall. We're talking about what is the actual inside structure look like? Yeah, because, I mean, you so, know, you, we've, we've talked about illusions before and how they, like, until you absolutely think that they're not there, you pretty much think that they're there. And echolocation would basically, if it's, not material like if it i mean it would just yep i would think it would just be overpowered and you would just be like illusion spells well, don't some work illusions are supposed to if you actually believe that they're there do damage yeah. to you right if yeah that's what happens yeah. and so if yep. it's doing damage to you is it a mind thing or is it like 
is it like you right. said like is there some kind of physical component that would react to this right and, and we're talking about fantasy but say in a, in a, a superhero game like champions right they distinguish between uh images which are light illusions and mental illusions now mental illusions are basically it's irrelevant yeah. Yeah. what you your brain is going to translate whatever it is to whatever it is and the person who's casting the mental illusion doesn't have much control over it like okay well i'm cat you think that there's a concrete wall there so whatever you imagine a concrete wall is like that's what it is i don't have to do the details right but when you're talking about creating uh, an image, say, with a, a D&D type of illusion, then you kind of maybe have to think a little deeper about how this works. And again, you could just hand wave it and say, like, well, it's just 60 foot, you know, blindside and that's what you have. Right. But again, if you're building a race, it can be a much more interesting way of building advantages into a race. Like a whole a race's entire racial abilities could be simply based on echolocation. You have, you know proficiency in or bonuses with or advantage on medicine checks right in fifth edition medicine is kind of a crappy skill and doesn't do much but <laughs> but it, it, it could still be something that adds some interesting flavor without necessarily breaking the game by using these particular skills or again if you're in a science fiction game that can be fascinating you have a an uplifted dolphin medic has a whole different way of looking at things and even or even a even a mechanic who is using the echolocating principles to be able to maybe look inside a inside of an engine without having to remove the engine of the car do yeah. you know what i'm saying yeah you might not get super amounts of detail but you get some things that it can use that would be super helpful yeah right and and to me these things are fascinating but again like bioacoustics and sleep physiology which we'll talk about in a second are both really fascinating to me in marine mammals because again they're basically if you think of them as humans underwater right they're just cows underwater or whatever mammal on the surface you want to use a parallel for they do these things that theoretically we might have evolved or developed if we had been put in these kind of environmental constraints mm. right so um so speaking of that so so we'll go to the next sense sight which is again the same just like with hearing there's this distortion right you've you've tried to you know you've been above water and tried to reach in and grab something that's underwater right it it's bends not a little it, bit when you, yeah, right. It's a little it's bit, like a, di it's a little bit different. Distance is a little bit different, right? Everything becomes a displacer beast, right? Mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it's right, about right. Six inches away from where it's yep. where you think it's yep. supposed to be, right? So, um, so when you're talking about outside of water and into water, that's a clear that's a clear thing that most people can really relate to. Um, but when you're underwater and you have your eyes open, I mean, you know that things are blurry. You get a very general idea of where things are, but no real detail. And that's why people wear goggles or they wear, you know, a dive mask because you have an air pocket in there that allows your eyes to actually work appropriately so that you can kind of see out. Again, your ring of water breathing doesn't really take that into account. <laughs> so again, these are ways that you can give your characters, give your characters items to help them underwater without removing every single limitation and just having it be mm -hmm. a surface game, right? So it's it's a very quick and easy way of doing something. And again, if you have, again, the helmet of underwater action in the first edition early rules and second edition, I think they spoke specifically about how the helmet not only allows you to breathe underwater, but allows you to adapt to darkness underwater and helps you be able to see appropriately and all of these things that, again, is a very different type of magic item than a, a ring of water breathing. And I know, Mitch, last last time we were talking about this, you were super fascinated about the idea of 
different magic items underwater. Oh yeah. How they can work. And, and these are, these are the ways that, you know, cause I've talked to people and they're like, well, I'll just get a ring of water breathing and I'm good. I'm like, no, not, not <laughs> well, at all. That's the way actually. it works in Skyrim. <laughs> oh, is it? Nice. That's good to know. There you go. Um, but then, then the last sense I want to talk about is the one that I think Chris was super yeah. excited yeah. about, which is, which is called electro reception. And, uh, electro reception is, is we, we, we discovered this, uh, and the research is mostly done on sharks. So sharks are just shockingly, no, no pun intended, actually. No, <laughs> they're, they're shockingly amazing creatures. Um, they're elegant, simple, and straightforward. To the point where, and this sounds terrible, but there was an experiment done where they took a, I think it was a nurse shark. They removed the brain of the nurse shark, which was the size of like a walnut. And they had put the shark in a tank that had a, a, a current running through it. And they had attached its body to, um, to kind of a, a mechanical device that would allow it to float appropriately and move. And without the brain, the shark kept swimming for like four days. Hmm. Like the, the, they're so elegant, a machine that the brain seems to be for the, in this particular shark, but I think in, in, I, I think the generalization can be made to a lot of sharks. It's, it's basically a way station for the senses. It's taking, okay, my eyes see something, my nose smells something, it goes to the brain and it tells my body what to do with that. But even without the brain, the body just kept going until it starved to death because it, wasn't able to eat or do anything. So it's more of like a relay station than anything when it comes to it, sharks. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why from an evolutionary standpoint, sharks haven't changed. They got to they got to a point and they're like, nope, this works great. Yeah, this, this is good. <laughs> Ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, We're right, good. right. Right? So, um, which, which is fascinating to me, but one of the things that they do is they have these, uh, these lines that go across the sides of their bodies and in some sharks, you can actually see these uh, these lines that go across, and they actually pick up um, the bioelectric signals of things that are in the water. And part of the reason why, so some divers that are fishing in areas that are known to have sharks, they'll fish underwater like spearfish, but they'll put their fish in a net and have that net hanging behind them by 10 feet or so, right? Now the fish are bleeding so sharks could come and that kind of thing. But the reason why they hang it 10 feet behind them is because one of the things that tends to happen with sharks is at least a theory or a hypothesis, I should say, is that um, if you're wearing fish on your belt, the shark is going to smell the fish blood. It's going to come toward you. But if you look at recordings of sharks, when they actually go into bite, they tend to close their eyes. And that's for protection yeah, for their that. eyes when they get close yeah, to something, that, yeah. right? So when they close their eyes, they depend entirely on this electroreceptive power to hit the target they're going for. So they might understand that it's fish blood they smell. They might see you and maybe somehow register that you're not a fish. But once they close their eyes to strike, they're going to strike at the biggest electromagnetic field that they detect. And that's going to be the diver. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're they're going for the fish, but they basically accidentally attack something that they don't necessarily want to eat so that you can hang the, the, the net 10 feet behind you. And even though the shark gets drawn to the area, they're not necessarily going to attack you because you're not necessarily what they're interested in. Right. 
they're going to hit the they're going to hit the 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 fish, right? You're just going to lose the fish and not a leg, right? So this electric sense comes up with a lot of cartilaginous fish. So sharks are cartilaginous fish along with skates and rays and uh I think hagfish and certain other so a cartilaginous fish, you know how you don't, you never see a shark skeleton in a, in a museum? Mm-hmm. That's be, you only see the jaw, right? Is that because it's, I mean, everything is just cartilage within the shark and it just exactly. deteriorates when they die? Yep. There is no bony structures within a shark with the exception, as I understand it, with the exception of their jaw and the teeth that come out of them. So it's also, as an aside, it's also incredibly difficult for us to tell what the lifespan in the wild of a shark is. Because the things that we normally use to determine those things, like bones and teeth, yeah, they, they crank like, through they teeth like a conveyor belt. Yeah, so, they, have like, they have like tens of rows of teeth that are just right. there. And they those teeth are jagged. They end up in targets, causing yep. open bleeding wounds that they can track afterwards. <laughs> like It's just freaking crazy, right? But the only thing they really have is this, this jaw, which is, the only, which is the reason why you're not going to see a shark skeleton is because there isn't one. Right. It's a soft tissue that does that breaks down after the shark dies. Right. So anyway, this electroreception can also be active and passive in the same way that sonar is. Right. You can have act active where they're actually sending out, like, say, an electric eel may send out a, or something similar, like a, some kind of analog for your fantasy or science fiction world. It could send out an electric pulse and have that electric pulse be stopped or reflected back off of objects in the same way that sonar does. Right. And again, with water being an incredible uh, electrical conduit, that could be a really interesting twist for your race or your monster. Right. Um, or passive, which is what I think the majority of electroreception is, this passive electroreception in which you are just detecting the bioelectric fields that come off of living objects. Now, unlike echolocation, you won't be able to detect things like, say, walls. Right. right? Yeah, because they don't give off that bioelectric sense right yeah but when we first started putting underwater uh, cable systems back in the early 1900s we were putting underwater cables for like telegraphs and stuff they would get destroyed by sharks coming through the area because the electrical current going through these things were freaking them out well that was gonna so be one would... thing that i asked like i wonder if if you had a you know a, a, a bad guy that was in here i wonder if you could like overwhelm them yeah, possibly. Absolutely. Like, is that is that a thing? Have they ever done that with sharks before? Like, could you overwhelm a shark system with too much? I would. I would imagine so, based yeah. on just the just well, the reaction yeah, I mean, that if they you, have. If you to think these... of like electrical systems, and I know that an electrical system of a house and a and a shark are not the same, but you blow a fuse every once in a while, you know. Like, I wonder if that's something with a shark. Like, if it, if too much or any sort of creature that has this has too much source or too much of the electrical source yeah. go to them. It just overwhelms them and they either like just die or they just shut down. Like it just is like, they can't I handle think, it anymore. I I honestly think it would be the exactly the same as saying, you know, a flashbang, right? Flashbang mm-hmm. makes you deaf and blind for a while. You sure. could do the same thing based if you, what would happen if you had, a, if you were fighting a shark and you hit it with a lightning bolt, like, yeah. you know, if you can, if you think about how this works, then you might give, some advantages mm-hmm. like fire doesn't work super well underwater right but in in uh in the cerulean but. sea setting they just ignore fire altogether and all spells that are fire like are just these superheated steam damage mm-hmm. they don't even they consider it heat damage not fire damage mm-hmm. but like with an electric with a lightning bolt again 
it's a huge conductor underwater, like you may actually take damage from casting the lightning bolt, but it might also become a very much larger area of effect weapon underwater, as well as having things like this, you know, like sharks that you're being attacked by, they might get completely confused. They might uh, take off. They might leave. They might go the opposite direction. They might just immediately attack anything that's nearby them, be it friend or foe. There's, again, these interesting ways that you can make this environment different in in little ways that makes it uh, more interesting than you might think than being on uh, above water, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, another thing that somebody brought up to me when we were talking about like underwater cities or how they would develop culturally and things like that, uh, somebody asked me about sleeping underwater, right? Because when you're, you know, does a fish sleep is basically what someone asks. That's asked always me. a question I've had since the very first time I caught a bass in my in my grandfather's <laughs> lake. <laughs> does this mm-hmm. thing sleep? And I honestly don't know if I can answer that question 100%. I suspect there's somebody out there who would correct me on it. But technically, they do, yes. Um, they don't sleep the same way we do. But what I can speak to in detail is marine mammal sleep physiology. Right. And again, as, a, as this analog, this parallel to us on the surface and our PC races, our most common PC races, then this is something that we can use, hopefully, in developing what we're doing. And, and what's interesting about marine mammals is that they sleep one hemisphere of the brain at a time. Hmm. So they are never entirely asleep. I think of it almost like the, they describe like the elves in D&D had that four hour trance. Yeah, right? Right. Yeah, right. So the way that it works, like uh, the spinner dolphins in Hawaii had this study. They, when they have a pod, if you can imagine like, you know, if you, if you put your hands out in front of you with 10 fingers, right? So you're the, the, this is a, each finger is a, a dolphin in a pod The the right hand dolphins are sleeping. The, the left hemisphere of their brain is sleeping. So the right hemisphere of their brain is working. And the right hemisphere of the brain controls the left eye. It's very compl- complicated, right? <laughs> so if you look at the, the five dolphins of your right hand are looking to their left. And the five dolphins on your left hand are looking to your right. Okay? You got me so yep. far? Yep. So when they're sleeping together, if a threat, say sharks are coming from the left, all of the dolphins of your right hand are going to see that shark, right? Right. They're going to react, right? They're going to wake up and they're going to take off. All the shark, all the dolphins of your left hand aren't going to see the shark, right? Because the shark's to their left. They're going to see left. the dolphins. But they're yeah. going to see the dolphins on their right freaking out and taking off, which gives them the trigger to wake up <laughs> and take off. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It is a really interesting process. You would and, never, and, you would never need to ask who's taking watch, first exactly, shift and second shift. Exactly, <laughs> and and the only reason we know this is because uh, a, a brilliant and kind marine biologist, kind of the grandfather of of marine mammal natural history, is a guy named Ken Norris, um, who I was entirely honored to meet when I was at Santa Cruz. He passed away a while ago. He did a, the, he found out that spinner dolphins in Hawaii. There's a pot of a group of them, pot of them that come back to the same cove to sleep. And so he was actually able to do observations on them because the more majority of these dolphins, we don't know where they're at when they're doing the sleep cycle. So we can't track them down. And, and a lot of times when you do that and you have a boat in the area, they're not going to sleep because they 
there's something more interesting happening, right? So, so they were able to set up watch in this particular cove in Hawaii, um, uh, and, and watch this process happen, right? So to me, this is fascinating. And what this means to us as humans is that whatever sleep is, whatever sleep's requirement to our daily life is, it, it actually doesn't require us to do what we do as humans. We find a safe place, we curl up, and our entire body goes unconscious, both hemispheres of the brain, and we're completely, for the most part, unaware of anything that's happening around us. We have the luxury of doing that because we're on the surface. Dolphins, whales, marine mammals, they don't have that don't luxury. Have that. So where a fish is breathing water, like getting breathing air or oxygen out of the water itself, the dolphin has to breathe. And though they can hold their breath for 10, 15, 20 minutes, you know, many species, they still have to breathe. So they have to be near to the surface. They have to constantly be aware. Imagine if you had to wake up every 10, <laughs> 15 minutes. How good a sleep oh. are you going to get? I know how bad me, it is waking up once in the middle of the night. Yeah, let me tell you, as a man with a two-year-old and a one-month-old, <laughs> it's it sucks, right? But with dolphins, they have to be aware of their surroundings because, again, as we were talking last time, wandering monsters are everywhere, yeah. right? There could be potential threats coming from anywhere. It's a 3D environment. You're constantly having to adjust your movement because there's currents and everything else happening. You have to be awake enough to be able to breathe when you need to breathe, Right. There are all of these uh, environmental pressures that happen on on uh, on mammalian physiology when it's put underwater that we don't have on the surface, which makes these things fascinating and really interesting to me. So if I'm developing a a dolphin-like race or any race that's sleeping underwater that's a breath-holding race instead of a uh, a guild race, you have to take this kind of thing into account. So are they always a nomadic race? What if they do develop underwater cities? Do they find a way to create air pockets in their rooms that they can sleep in safely, right? Do they have this, you know, elf-like ability to do the four-hour trance where you're aware of your mm -hmm. surroundings, but you just kind of be chill for a while? Like, these are all things that um, that most, most fantasy-related games don't really take into account. Well, and there what happens, a... too, like, if, if you're a race that doesn't sleep that way and you find a nomadic herd of whatever race you're yeah. playing with and all of a sudden they all take off but you're in your unconscious state you have a helmet or whatever that allows yeah. you to just sleep normally they all right. take off and then you right. just all of a sudden get attacked out of nowhere by this wandering monster and you're like well what the heck why did everybody just leave me here like what's right. going on usually we wake each other up right and and if so say you have your uh say you're in your orc campaign right right uh mitch yeah you have your, your orc campaign and, and you're you're out in the open ocean with no islands for whatever reason, right? Maybe you ran into a trap that teleported you out there or something, right? And, and your ship has major catastrophe that happens. Now you, maybe you have potions of water breathing or these helmets of underwater action or gnomish or dwarven technology that allows you to not die immediately, right? But now what do you do when you sleep? Who sleeps? How do you sleep? Right? <laughs> if you're in the open ocean where it's where it's four four miles deep and nothing in sight, there is no curl up in your bedroom. No, not at all. There there is there is no inn, right? So so how does that work at night? That this can be something it, it, it harkens back to like JM 
uh, on your show talking about survivalist gaming, right? Yeah. yeah. These these things can be as long as you don't overwhelm your players if they just don't care, right? <laughs> as long as you don't overwhelm them with all these details. Like, what was he talking about? The um, the 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 party members who were like uh, they were like abused pets because their DM made them attacked them every time they went to the yeah. bathroom. <laughs> yeah. And then he, he had to, he made them go to the bathroom. Yep. If they didn't say they went to the bathroom, they would get sick and like, yeah. like don't do that to your players. <laughs> just, just don't do it. Right. But, but if you drop some of these things, it makes players think about things that are really interesting besides just like, yeah, well, I'm a ranger. I can find enough water and food for us. So let's hand wave it and move on. Right. So can be, can be really, really interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you guys have any questions about that or like, like, I was just going to say it would be I, talking about going to the bathroom. That's another thing. Like <laughs> what you need to go to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just saying that's like, we normally do it in private. Like, yeah, you just there's do this, it and it floats up. There you go. There's, <laughs> that's a, a, that's actually a, like a running Aquaman. I, and I guess by parallel Namor joke about like, how does, <laughs> How does Aquaman go to the bathroom? Um, I wish I wish I could find it, but there's a comic out there that some guy just schooled everybody who asked that question. It was fascinating. Like, apparently they have like you know their their bathrooms are filled with these you know fish that eat waste, right? Which I mm-hmm. thought was an interesting idea to develop. But that fish that eats waste is apparently a common sushi fish as well and so like the person who was asking aquaman this question was like eating sushi at the time and like mocking aquaman because he was eating sushi or whatever and then he like turned it around i I, oh god i wish i knew where that was it was so funny but um that makes me rethink all of the sushi i'm ever going to eat in the future now right well like Uh. we were talking about that snow that that were those waste products in the surface that that you know when animals die and decompose and they have you know again going to the bathroom all that stuff has to go somewhere and where it goes is it drops to the to the bottom and so there's this rich amount of biomass that sits on the bottom of the ocean and if you've ever heard of the phrase of a of an upwelling what happens say along um along say a coral reef if there's some storms or these underwater currents come up and they they are pushing this stuff along the bottom and they hit a wall like uh like a um a coral reef then that that current now pushes everything up the wall, right? Mm-hmm. So it starts bringing all this biomass, you know, food basically, all of this nitrogen-rich stuff, just like we have in our soil here, brings it up into the into the light uh, light-bearing areas, and you have these blooms of microscopic organisms that cause blooms of krill and blooms of shrimp, and then that brings in, say, you know, manta ray filter feeders or whales mm-hmm. or whatever it happens to be, right? So. Um, Anyway, bit of an aside, but like, this is why there's like coral reefs are so full of, of, uh, of, of life is partially because of these upwellings are a natural occurrence, right? Um, but it is something you have to think about. And though I encourage people not to hand wave as many things as possible, you are welcome to hand wave going to the bathroom. <laughs> going to the bathroom. Yeah, I'm okay with that. No problem. Right. Um, and so, so actually, that that brings me to another thing that people were asking me about was uh, somebody had said, what did they say? They said that they were really impressed by the amount of surface area that you can play with underwater, uh, with water, right? Yeah. So, so the surface of our planet is covered about 30% of it is livable land and 70% of it is surface area of water, right? 
So the person had said like, oh, it's so cool that there's, there's, there's over twice as much surface area to play with. And I'm like, actually, there's way, way more than that, that, right? I think that's always like what Namor and Aquaman always say whenever somebody like gets on their bad side. Like, I am the king of seven over seventy percent of this planet. You don't understand, like, right, right. And it's not just seventy percent of. If you look at actual livable space, right? They're talking, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I'm, you're talking 95 to 99% of the livable biomass space is the ocean, right? And the land is, it almost feels irrelevant to me, right? So, so from though, so, so the highest, highest point on earth that we're aware of that, that I know of anyway is Mount Everest, right? Mm-hmm. So it's about, it's about five and a half miles up. The, the deepest point that we're aware of uh, in the ocean is called the Challenger Deep, which is in the Marianas Trench. And it's seven miles deep, right? So relatively comparable, right? The difference is, is that not every... Well, when you're in a... When you, when you go to a country, like there's like a no-fly zone over Iraq or whatnot. Yeah. So it's the, it's the, it's the um, airspace above Iraq. Well, that's not livable space. Imagine if the city that, so the city that you're in, right? The city that you live in. Imagine that city if it was a, a cylinder with all living space available up to two miles high. That's crazy. That's crazy. Do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. So the average depth of the ocean, the average depth is about 14,000 feet or so, which is maybe a couple, two and a half miles ish, something like that. So if you just take the average depth of the ocean, it's everything that we have on the surface plus every inch of space two and a half miles into the sky <laughs> of living of living area, right? So it, it's massive beyond our ability to really comprehend. So when you're out in these areas that I call like the, the ocean's desert, right, this open ocean, there is there's nothing and, and there's when you have a, a bucket that's floating out there with some seaweed caught around it, you will see creatures congregating around this thing because it provides some form of shelter against something that's out there. Mm-hmm. Even if it's a small fish, you know, it also provides some shade, right? So the, the, the sun that, that, uh, the sun and radiation from the sun doesn't penetrate super deep as far as damaging sunburning radiation. But it does actually penetrate some. So creatures that want to live near the surface where they can get more sun and, and uh, get their energy reserves from that still need some kind of shade to protect them from it. So um, it's vast. So when I was talking last time about how the things that live out there are really, really big stuff and really, really fast stuff for the most part, it's maybe you can see like when a dolphin pod can travel 100 miles in a day, you understand that that's actually not very far. Right. Right. With the area that we're talking about. Sounds like a lot. I mean, human beings can only walk, if you walk 10 hours at three hour, three miles an hour, you're walking 30 miles. Yeah. yeah. So 100 miles is, sounds like a lot. But when you're talking about that kind of area, it's really not. Right. So keeping in mind that, that that whole area is what you have to play with of depth and size and what's out there and structures and things that you might want to build when it's not out in the open ocean, or even if it is out in the open ocean, right? So I, I have a question about that sunlight stuff too. Like, say if a if a fish were to come up from the lower lower depths to the upper 
parts of of the the ocean with the yeah. sunlight does that affect them adversely compared to what they're used to that's a great question and i i just don't think it it happens often enough i don't know if there's been sure. any studies about that yeah so typically what happens when you have like a deep water fish that gets pulled up to the surface it's usually in a net or it's research or something like that or it's nighttime and uh say the the larger squids uh, lou anders um the writer i've talked about a few times right. he and i were talking about krakens right so why Krakens are that, that myth of the Kraken originated kind of in the Viking North cold area is because the normal habitat for these colossal squid are pretty deep where it's incredibly cold and dark, right? So when you're get farther north, uh, in uh, latitude, you have the opportunity for these things to come up to shallower depths because you have longer periods of time where it's dark mm. during certain times of the year which is also horrifying because it's attacking you in the dark right, right yeah and it's much colder which is so what everything is distorted to. at that point in time right it's dark, exactly yeah. exactly plus you know like I, I sent out that link to you guys about the colossal squid having the giant rotating hooks and <laughs> yeah. you know in the, in the teeth and their suction cups it's a thing out of yeah. nightmares man you just yeah it's just craziness right so the reason why that, that myth started there was because they were actually seeing these squid. And so, so something that comes up from the surf, some up from the depth is probably going to only do so during certain times of the year or at certain areas where it's colder and when it's dark. So it's kind of really hard to tell. I don't think anybody's done sunburn, you know, research on. Yeah. Well, I was know, just going to say that might be interesting if for some reason you played a really deep race or your characters played a really deep race yeah. of, of aquatic animals, you might be able to homebrew something that says, all right, well, they stole something from you. You have to go up to the surface during the day. Yeah. How does that adversely affect you? It could add a lot of interesting elements to a world at that point in time. Yeah, and the parallel to that, of course, is going to be the Underdark right. and all the creatures that live in the Underdark. So certainly light sensitivity. You know, I, I built a... So I had the Merfolk race on Tribality, and then I did some various sub-races that include a, a, a deep, deep water race. And so the easiest way to do that is increase their dark vision to 120 feet in 5th edition and give them light sensitivity to compensate for the advantage of having dark vision 120 feet. But this is just like, you're, this is exactly what I was talking about earlier, and you're doing it, which is taking it another, taking it the next step, mm -hmm. right? So, great, dark vision, okay, awesome, light sensitivity. But what about the other physiological effects, right? What happens yeah. if you have a, what happens if you have a dro or a Sverve Neblin or a whatever on a ship, right? I think, was it us? Or you guys were talking to Sean maybe about sunburn on a pirate ship during the pirate episode? Yeah, I believe yep. so, yeah. Right? Yep. So what happens if you have a Sferv Neblin who's for some reason exiled to the surface and has decided he loves water, right, and wants to be on a pirate ship? I mean, it's completely bizarre and probably not going to run into it very often. <laughs> Does it end up being something like SpongeBob where they put bowls of water on their head when they go into a place? <laughs> or, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I mean, it's certainly something to think of, taking it to that next level, right, and, and thinking about it. Do they have um, rings of air breathing or whatever where they yeah. have, you know, yeah. You know, and we then, talk about then, having a pocket of air around us. Possibly, do they have yeah, a it could bubble be a of magical water component, you? or yep. they're just going to constantly be covering themselves in a cloak and mm -hmm. hiding during the daytime? Because I mean, that's what Dritz does when he comes out from the Underdark. Is he's when he has to be outside during the day, he's got his cloak up all the time. You see all the Im images of it because sun isn't too kind to the drow. No, not at all. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, another good parallel is. Um, uh, Abe Sapien, you guys know Abe Sapien, 
No. Have you heard of him at all? Mm-mm. So um, in the Hellboy comics um, and in the Hellboy movie, there's this. Oh, yeah. Abe. Right. Yep. So Abe Sapien, uh, yep. he's this aquatic creature that they found, you know, uh, in a suspended animation and they woke him up. Right. He's a really interesting character. Again, a few mm-hmm. a few things that parallel here nicely is he is psionic, right? Yeah. He has uh, yeah. psycho. He has um, um, oh shoot, I lost it. What's the psychic power when you touch objects and you um can read off of them? I know, I I know, I, ESP, I know what you're talking what about. No, there's a particular there's a particular. Uh, it's gonna drive me nuts. We're gonna get a million emails about it. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's a psychic ability when you pick up an object you can read the psychic kind of echoes and residue of who's held the object and its history and things like that oh uh anyway is, yeah. he can he can do he can do that and he has certain limited levels of like telepathy and things but when he's on the surface going on adventures with hellboy he has this actual it's it's like a reverse scuba outfit he 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 gets this tank of water that's on his back um, that's constantly being oxygenated, and then it, it, he's got this thing that clips around his neck over his gills that runs this water back and forth over his gills, and he doesn't have to wear like a full helmet or anything. Right. It's just covering his right. gills, and then I'm assuming he has lungs because he can also speak above water. But like you were talking about, with if you have a ring of air breathing as opposed to a ring of water breathing, that still doesn't necessarily solve all your problems. Yeah. Aside yeah. from, you know, if you're a merfolk, how do you walk around on land? You also have, if you put some thought into, well, how do these things communicate? Well, but if you do Dolph- that clicking like dolphins, that's not, yep. you're not necessarily, even if you can do it above water, yep. people that speak common aren't going to be able to understand that. Right. And now uh, a, a, a great, great book that kind of helps to explain some of these things from a game standpoint is from that Blue Planet sci-fi setting. Uh, it's a book called Ancient Echoes. And... I think I'm all, I'm paraphrasing this from the book, but basically they're saying that they're soup, they get super frustrated when somebody wants to play a dolphin in the setting and is just playing a human in a dolphin suit. And they want, you know what I mean? And they want yeah, to yeah. have someone who understands that you're trying to get into the brain of something entirely not human. Right. Well, it goes, has, it goes back to that whole, if you're going to do it, don't just run a surface game below the water. It's it, yeah. Yeah. Yes, Exactly. And, and I think this parallels a lot to like, ha- like say half orcs or elves or anything else on the surface. We tend to play them as humans in an elf suit, mm-hmm. right? With a few tweaks. You know what I'm saying? Instead of thinking like, God, how would this, re- how would being living this long really affect me? Or like you, your character example from the players episode, Chris, the one about the dwarf who's never come out from under, come out from the ground. Yeah. Like that whole like, paranoia of one of thinking you're going to get sucked into space trying to grab every single piece of you know either tree that you can see as stuff right, or a rock right. that's not going to move right. yeah right or you're the uh uh oh god what's his name the dwarf Durkon from uh, order of the stick who who thinks that uh trees are always trying to destroy him <laughs> um because they have no trees under right, underground. right yeah <laughs> so taking these things to the next level and expanding them out and seeing how they affect your character um anyway psychometry so, there's a that's what it's called yeah What's it called? The ability. Psychometry. Psychometry. That's it. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Reading of a token object, determining its history, what it's gone through. Yeah. Well, I, I, I have a section here talking about freedom of movement and water breathing and all that kind of stuff. We, we covered that pretty well in a lot of the other areas, but I do want to speak specifically about freedom of movement as a spell. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ways I get around freedom of movement, and this, this kind of also harkens back to, remember, uh, Mitch, you were just talking about you had a player character who was basically a rock underwater and he should have sank the way that i run freedom of movement it's great on the surface for like getting out of like entangles and stuff like that 
And in 5th edition, it actually doesn't address being underwater at all. But in 4th edition, and, or 3rd edition, 3.5 Pathfinder and earlier editions, it was part of the thing that you could just, you get your full movement underwater and you can just fight normally and everything's fine, right? Yeah. Basically, yeah. it's removed all the restrictions. But even, if you think yeah, about what even it's... with slashing weapons and bludgeoning weapons, they all right. do the, yeah, they just all do right. the same. So the first thing that pops into my head is, oh, it's removing both buoyancy and water resistance, right? Yeah. Seems fair, right? Seems seems fair, yeah. Which also means you fall a mile until you hit the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> and then it when basi- it wears off. <laughs> it basically it basically turns air or water into air for you, the equivalent. But that has some disadvantages. And those disadvantages is you actually can't swim. You could run along the bottom at full speed and no problems, right? So it, it can be interesting to me if you give your fighter a ring of free action or a spell or whatnot, if you're in 20 feet of water, it might not matter, right? Basically, the yeah. fighter's on the ground fighting with all of his advantages and being able to use his greatsword and whatever. That's awesome. He's at full power, but his range is really limited because of the fact that everybody else is flying, even though they're flying super slow and have limitations, right? Now this becomes a, a different level of tactics. Like, how do we get... How do we... We're playing Iron Man at the end of Avengers. How do we get the giant flying space whale it to, to, to the Incredible Hulk and Captain America to do anything with it, mm-hmm. right? So that can be really different tactically. But it also, to me, removes freedom of movement or the free action spell from simply removing almost all limitations, right? It doesn't have to be useless underwater. But it can change how you use it underwater. And yeah, I, you have and, to you have to think about it a little bit more. Like if, right, if and if you're, you're in the op- if it's four miles deep and you're in the open ocean, I in my game don't cast a freedom of movement spell on yourself. Yeah, but if you're like in an underwater cave or something like that, that's not that you know big right. or whatever, and you're fighting something in there, that's a little right. bit different of a story. So you have to, you have, I mean, you got to kind of think about when you're going to use it a little bit more. Right. Uh, also, if you cast a freedom of movement and a fly spell on yourself. That's a whole different world. Now you've used a couple of spell slots, and I'm pretty, I'm fine with that. Like, you're like, oh, now you've used a couple spell slots. You can now basically fly at full speed underwater and use every weapon you've got because you've used some resources to be right. able to make that happen, and you've thought about it a little bit, right? It, it that, makes it a little bit less overpowered at that point, then. I think so, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that brings us to weapons underwater, really, because that's, that's kind of leads into that. Like, there's a, um, Pathfinder has certain specific limitations like ranged weapons. What do they take? Like It's like a minus two to hit for every five feet. Yeah, I think it was something like that when we looked at it, yeah. And this was this was a really big talking point for us when we went into the underwater campaign that I did, or the underwater night, was like, yeah, let's do this. This is going to be sweet. Wait a minute. <laughs> How is this going to work exactly? Jousting on the back of a, of a dragon yep, turtle. That's the go. way we overcame it, yeah. Right, so you had these limitations that were put on yourself. And you can't tell me, Mitch, that that wasn't Oh, awesome. that was great. It was one of my favorite D&D memories of playing. <laughs> right. But if you hadn't had some of the limitations imposed by your environment, you may not have come up with that idea. <laughs> no. Right? no. So in general, piercing weapons do pretty well underwater. And in general, uh, most systems will also say that crossbows work pretty good because they're kind of like, they're basically like um, spear guns. Mm-hmm. And that seems pretty fair. Thrown weapons don't work really well. Do bows work? Would bows work the same way since they're kind of nope. being... They don't. I would. Okay. I would not because there's a difference between the mechanicalness. I'm. A, I'm. A, I'm a bit of a coin tosser on the crossbow itself, without a crossbow sure. being specifically 
developed. Like there's there's a lot of res- water resistance for the, the the bow part of the crossbow actually firing and things like that. But you know that's just maybe overthinking. Wow, does it, it get though. waterlogged and stuff like that? Does it start right. to yeah? Is there damage yeah, that get, goes along with damage? a crossbow? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's a reason why spear guns don't look like crossbows. Right. Right. There's a reason for that. So in fifth edition, there the rules are there's a certain small list of weapons you can use. It's basically trident, spear, dagger, short sword, which I'm glad they switched from a slashing weapon to a piercing weapon because short swords were meant to be thrusting weapons, mm-hmm. not really bashing weapons. As far as I know, somebody's going to call me out on that. Um, and things like that. But they have this weird, like, addendum which is if your character has a swim speed of a swim speed you can use any weapon and you're fine and i'm like how does how does you having a swim speed change the mechanics of the weapon yeah (laughs) yeah of a great axe doesn't still doesn't go through the water very well so in my games uh if i'm developing this uh mitch i was talking earlier about how i'm maybe developing a i'm not maybe i'm currently trying to develop a campaign setting very nice uh for aquatic stuff now nice pretty motivated and part part of that's thanks to you guys and, and all the fans um <laughs> awesome. asking stuff about it but that's not something i would change i would not change those limitations on the weapons that are able to be used now that reduces the number of weapons that you have a choice of um for every character across the board pretty much that's in the water but it does open up some interesting questions about what else would they use that we wouldn't use on the surface why would i said earlier why would you ever develop a great sword underwater because it would be worthless. There's no, there's no socio, so, sociological way, reason, or even war-related reason that you would really develop that, as far as I can think well, of. You can, you can get really creative with this too, because we don't have Atlanteans to go and ask, "What do you use underwater?" <laughs> you know, so, right? Or you do could, we? You could think, or do we? Ooh, you know. But yeah. you could, I mean, you could ask a whole bunch of different questions of like, well, what type of terrain do they have that we could make into? You know, how, what types of things would they use to hunt things? You know, right. So if there's not that many ranged weapons, then number one, if you get a ranged weapon or a spell that works, that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. And number two, so much, almost everything is is melee range related, mm-hmm. which changes combat completely. It's almost as it's almost like the idea of the the, the samurai in Japan when firearms were introduced, right? You have yeah. this whole culture that's based on melee or bow, at least bow related range and, and armor. Right, being completely overtaken by this level of technology, but underwater you might take that all the way back, even if you have firearms on the surface, right? And uh, and have that be something that's just the way that the culture is underwater across the board, mm-hmm. right? And I think th- that also brings into the development of weapons. Um, I got an idea. I posted a, a magic item called the Kraken's Beak, which was uh, inspired by a conversation I had with that that uh, DM I told you about that's run underwater campaigns for ten years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, his name is Daniel Craig, not the actor. <laughs> yeah, <that'd be> cool. <laughs> yeah um, cool. he made that joke last time too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I did. Yeah. So yeah. Daniel Craig. Yeah. So um, he he there's a there's a piece of the internal structure of a of a giant squid, and it's called the gladius. And a gladius is a short sword, a Roman short sword, right? And the reason it's called the gladius is because it has this uh, shape that looks like a sword with like the sword blade tang. That goes into the hilt, mm-hmm. and uh, I had never thought about that before. But he was talking about like we were having a conversation, basically about what other resources do you have underwater besides trying to pretend that forging happens, 
like you can forge metals underwater. You can make reasons to have that happen if you have volcanic activity and and all kinds of things that you can use to superheat metals. And there could be all kinds of really interesting, unique um, alloys that you have underwater that you can create. And that's great. But again, that's taking things that developed on the surface and forcing them underwater instead of thinking about what there is underwater and kind of going from there. Like, would you make a mace out of, say, a sea urchin yeah. shell, right? Yeah. Or take this uh, tang, this uh, this piece of mantle, make it into magic, and suddenly you have this biologic sword that doesn't, it's not going to rust underwater. It's not going to have these limitations. It's a short sword, so it's going to be able to thrust underwater normally without any yep. special anything, right? Yep. And all of this is being developed from what actually exists underwater to be able to use. And I'm hoping to bring some of that into the campaign setting that I'm yeah, developing. Do you, do you use stingray stingers as like daggers yep. or something like that yep. too? You know, there's there's all sorts of things that you could bring yeah. from that. Do you, yeah, do you, I mean, do you use, like there's so many poisonous fish with like quills and stuff like that. Yep. Do you use those for like different assassination things or, you know, there's, because yeah. I, th- I think it was the second book of the Greyhawk series that I was reading um, where they did that. They took an urchin to kill one of the pixie uh princes okay and it was like where the heck did they get that well they got it from the kuatoa and that was how they got it so it's you know it's one of those things that yeah you can do a lot of cool things with you know creatures and terrain and stuff like that yeah yeah absolutely uh and it yeah so that's that's kind of the thing on weapons you can i just love how at the end of that post you had to uh daniel craig's quote have you said that i don't think you've said that quote on the podcast yet have you, do you know what oh, about, I'm talking oh, about? Uh, his, yeah, Dan, Dan, Daniel says, uh, I run campaigns so my hags yeah. have someone to yeah. play with. <laughs> I run aquatic campaigns so my hags have someone to play with. <laughs> yeah. <I> think, <laughs> That's classic. That's it. That's a man who loves aquatic campaigns. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's uh, the next thing that I kind of wanted to talk about, um, we talked a lot about science fiction and fantasy, but kind of a really interesting thing to look at too, um, and I'm glad Mitch is back for this because I, I really want you to participate in this or give me some insight because I think you know more about it than I do, is the idea of superhero storylines. Mm-hmm. And and the both role from a role-playing game standpoint, the challenging thing about um, creating a superhero role-playing game back in the day when they first started was the fact that a superhero role-playing game has to be every genre. Yeah. Right? You have you have magical Thor yep. oh, yeah. wielding a magical hammer along with... Yeah, sci-fi. Sup- sup- yep. Yep, super soldiers and spies and and tech guys and aliens and people from the future and... So, you know, well, you, game... you need to look no further than look at the Marvel movies right now with you have like espionage in the Captain America ones. You have the fantasy, like you said, in the Thor, you have yep. sci fi in Guardians of the Galaxy. They, yep. they cover like everything in all of them. Yeah, right. And they do it and, they, and it's all in the same universe, yep. which makes it. How do you explain these things? Now they and took I think the mag- that was their biggest worry when they first made the first Avengers. Is is this go? It's it's been working separately. Will it work together? <laughs> right, right. And and uh, you have you know these dark street you know kind of things that are happening in the uh, the, the Netflix Marvel TV yep. shows too, right? So Which Daredevil, Luke Cage, yep. and yeah, but that's in the same universe as Shield and Guardians of the Galaxy, like. It takes a it takes a steady hand to make yeah. that work, yeah. but the but the upside is is you can there's so many storylines that you can take and so many so much inspiration you can find, right? And the, the classic things for both in DC and Marvel, we'll just stick with DC and Marvel for the most part, is um, Namor and Aquaman, right? They mm-hmm. both come from Atlantis, but as I understand it, with Namor, it, Atlantis is destroyed, right? Yeah, 
there is no Atlantis yep. in the Marvel Universe. At least destroyed. at this point, yeah, in the comics. Right. It'll, right. it'll then, all go back to, <laughs> but they're, they're going to switch back pretty soon, but yeah. Right. And then in Aquaman, um, it was exactly the opposite. So Atlantis was a continent that had seven kingdoms on it. And when it was sunk, um, then four of the kingdoms that we we're aware of were destroyed and all the people died. Um, for the most part, I think they said like 90% of the inhabitants died, but some of the, the members of those kingdoms, uh, the survivors came to Atlantis, which was the surviving culture. But there were two other cultures as well that are separate from the Atlanteans themselves. And that's why you see in, um, in Young Justice, in uh, the first and the second season, when you when they go to Atlantis, there's all this mix of races there, yeah, right? I noticed not, that when we were watching it, yeah. Yeah, there's merfolk, and there's humans like Aquaman, and there's, like, squid-headed guys, and there's, you know, um, what's his name? Lagan, who's in the second season, which you haven't seen yet. He's kind of a creature from the Black Lagoon-looking guy. There's all these mm. races, but they all, because they're all, it's not just one race of Atlanteans, right? Which like, can be interesting. So when you think about these things, if you're trying to create a, a, a sunken city or even just using the idea of Atlantis, there's a lot of questions that come up that you can answer and those questions can parallel your fantasy or science fiction game. Like, is Atlantis destroyed? Is it active? Right? Is it a sunken city of Atlantis or is it a sunken entire continent which could have uh, multiple kingdoms on it and Atlantis has just happened to be one of them, right? Is it Has it been uncovered? Is it still a mystery? Are they hiding? Why are they hiding? Like, that's something that always kind of bugs me. Like, why are they there and not communicating with the surface world, right? And I I don't, yeah. Well, I think I, in the comics, their explanation for that is usually that they don't care. Like, both Aquaman and right. Namor have this, like, we are superior to the to the surface dwellers mentality and which it's funny yes. because those those two people the kings of Atlantis are to an extreme that way but they're the two that always end up coming to the surface world to help out uh, but yeah it's yeah. it's more this i think it's this mentality of uh, we don't care what's happening with the surface world <laughs> like and, right. and like we said exactly. before it's like in their mind it's like that's such a small part of this world exactly. we live on why right. would we care we have all this ocean to deal with right exactly um, and then there's also the, there's also the question of um, whether your Atlantis is super science or sorcery. And uh, the the there was the Atlantis Disney movie. Yeah, they definitely. Had and the I think they had it. They had a mix. They definitely had a mix. Like, yeah, Magitech, right? And yeah. right. And in Aquaman, mm -hmm. they tend to focus a little bit more on the sorcery, believe it or not. But they do have a bit of the science, and it depends on kind of what version you're watching. I don't know anything about the history of Namor's Atlantis. I know at one point he was in suspended animation and they woke him up and Atlantis had been destroyed yeah, there's... by nuclear testing. Yeah, or something. I don't believe there is a lot of Namor storylines going on currently. And I think part of that is because of the rights. They don't hold the Namor's rights right now. But a lot right. of the Namor stuff is uh, happens with other stories so namor will be a part of the x-men story because he's part he's part mutant and there will be a big avengers line where an avenger like the avengers will fight people who are from atlantis and stuff. but i don't think there's a lot of namor only atlantis only stuff going on currently at the very least yeah i understand so but that brings up another thing like like the idea that aquaman or that atlantis in general if it's 
even if it's not discovered, if you have your superheroes or your characters coming from this sunken kingdom uh, in a modern world, does that kingdom have a place in, say, NATO or the United Nations? And I had never thought of this until I watched the Justice League animated series, because at one point, one of the reporters was yelling at Aquaman. Yeah, like, I remember that. You know, yeah. you know will Atlantis yeah, be joining the United Nations? And I was like, oh, my God, that makes that makes a whole that's a whole different level of like politics and world building. And and if you have all this high tech, then it's always the superhero question of why aren't why is this high tech affecting the entire planet? Like, great. Um, Reed Richards has discovered how to cure this disease. Why is this not? Why doesn't everybody know how to yeah. do this? Or why doesn't he cure yeah. hunger across the world? You know, or so these are, I mean, you don't necessarily need to answer all these questions, but it's something to think about that the existence of this thing is not just us and them. There's an interaction here that can happen. And the same thing happens in your fantasy worlds, right? Does your, you know, sea elf kingdom have regular trade, you know, with uh, an island nation somewhere, right? Uh, but not with another I island think nation. So what if they allied themselves with England, but not with Spain, you know, kind of a thing? How does that affect shipping lanes? And yeah, I think that idea else, of like so. a UN type of deal in a fantasy world, I think most fantasy worlds uh, are too backwards in their like politics that there, there are a lot of monarchs and there are a lot of wars between each other that that kind of a political system doesn't end up going into a lot of fantasy worlds but we encourage like people to make their own worlds and to make them different than just the classic like you have the regular fantasies and just stealing everything from one setting but make them different and that's a fantastic and really interesting idea of having that kind of thing set up and then going further and saying you know is there a representative from from the ocean world is there a representative from the the dark uh the underdark is there represent is there like a moon nearby you can go further beyond even your planet that there are representatives from it and maybe there's a race from a nearby moon or from since we're talking aquatic yeah like underwater there's cities and stuff and how does that affect because i i feel like the aquaman namor uh, mentality of like we don't care about the surface dwellers it definitely can go both ways yeah. and when there's a big issue that could be a huge danger for the planet <laughs> well you might have both of those sides right. arguing and fighting amongst themselves and like because one side is in much more peril than the other yeah i was just thinking too like i mean even if even if you're talking just un or nato i just wonder you know i haven't thought this is something i haven't even thought about in my world like i haven't thought much about the under underwater worlds that might exist in my world at all and i was just thinking like does that mean like yeah people in my yeah. world would know that there's yep. an underwater like civilization there if so do they trade with each other like what does trade look like for you know an underwater civilization do they even need anything from right. the the surface world does the surface world need anything from them you know what is what does that whole situation look like too? Like that's, that brings up a lot of stuff that I got to think through, but. Right. And now also think about this, even if you only consider the surface area of the planet, say, assume your fantasy world is 30% mm-hmm. land and 70% water, right? If you only consider that and not the 3d aspect of it, you have more than twice the surface area of ocean. So how many, right. con- how many individual countries and cultures do we have on the surface? 
and how many would there be underwater? So typically when we think of like, oh, well, here's my one underwater kingdom or Aquaman is the ruler of, of the seven seas or whatever. Well, mostly because Atlantis is just one place and that's the only place there is. So by default, he owns the rest of it. But what happens if there's, if you have 25 or 30 kingdoms or countries in your fantasy mm-hmm. world, which is not unheard of, you know, big and small, you know, even if you had 10, you would have 20 or 30 just by surface area underwater. And that creates all kinds of stuff that you need to think about for politics and trade and Maybe I you know all that kind of stuff. Maybe I won't open up that can of worms while I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then but the other effect of that too, the other idea is you have to think about the physiology of these Atlanteans or these these creatures. Can they can they live on the surface indefinitely and breathe water, or can they only do one or the other? Is that what makes Namor and Aquaman special that they could do both, and the Atlanteans can't come above the water? for more than holding their breath, quote unquote, or with high technology, just the same way as we only can do the same thing with scuba gear to a certain depth like that, that may change politics drastically. Then who is your representative and where is that representation? And is it like, um, is it like Battlestar Galactica, the, the remake where they had the one, the one station that was on the border of Cylon space and human space where a dude showed up once a year forever, but nobody came from the Cylons for 20 years, you know, like, is it this one floating, you know, spot? Yeah, or like if go you're gonna meet, if you're gonna you know? hold like a you so know, peace these are all I, or something like that. Well, do you hold it underwater? Do you hold it out in the water right? where do you know the water creatures would have the advantage if they just wanted to yeah. decimate everything? Do you hold it on land where the yep. water creatures have no? Yep. You know how do you how do you handle those types of conversations too? Yeah, exactly. Which 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 uh, kind of rolls us into like common kind of plot seeds, right? So that's a good one right there. Like if you're, if you've just been discovered or, or there's been some problems, you know, having a peacekeeping mission, being, having your player characters be representative, representatives of the surface world or the, the water world going to the surface to make some deals with bordering countries or island nations or whatnot. Um, Mitch mentioned like the classic, you know, mm-hmm. death to the surface world. They're poisoning our oceans, you know, kind of classic, you know, Aquaman, particularly Namor. Stop putting um, tuna in a can. He's always, he's always super, super angry that Namor <laughs> yes, guy. Yes, um, But in like Flashpoint Paradox, there's an animated, there's the DC comic, but the animated movie, which is brilliant, Flashpoint Paradox, where um, the, some things happen in, in Flash's history, uh, time things that happen, and it screws up the whole planet. And uh, one of the things that happens is that Atlantis and uh, Themyscira go to war. So it's the super powerful Amazons against the super powerful high tech magic using Atlanteans. And basically the surface world is getting just completely decimated with no way to, uh, as uh, as uh, Nick Fury said, we are uh, hilariously outgunned by the two, these two, mm-hmm. you know, magic using mm-hmm. races destroying each other, right? So your surface area could just be caught in the middle of something that's that's a problem, or uh, the the threats from the deep. Right? We talked about uh, Aboleths coming up and and deciding they want to you know take over the surface for whatever reason or at least coastal areas. Um, one cool aspect of Aquaman that was introduced quite a few years ago now is that the the ruler of Atlantis actually faces Cthulhu every few years to force huh. him back to sleep so he never wakes up. 
So Aquaman basically <laughs> fights Cthulhu every three or four years and forces him back into slumber. Um, what happens if the ruler or, or some magical organization or group gets infiltrated or, or has been doing this thing secretly that the surface world has no idea about, right? On the same parallel, like, uh, you know, giant monsters, right? Kaiju coming up from dimension, you know, dimensional portals in the deep or Pacific Rim, like yeah. things. Wasn't that um, Pacific Rim? Wasn't that? The, yeah, they were saying there are other dimensional beasts. That's a great idea, having them coming up from, from the ocean doing that kind of thing. Great idea there. In again, the DC Comics, there's the race of the uh, called the Trench, which is actually one of the surviving kingdoms of Atlantis. They had evolved into these these horrifying creatures uh, that live in the Marianas Trench, and uh, uh, alien incursions too. Right, aliens hiding in the oceans. Um, again, second season of Young Justice, the uh, invasion season. Uh, the race called the Reach had an armada of ships that were hiding deep in the oceans and the surface world didn't know anything about them. Uh, the Abyss movie from James Cameron has aliens living down there. There's, there's like so much interesting stuff that you can have. Um, but you can pull those inspirations. There's, there's a lot of stuff from the comics that you can use that go beyond that cliche shelf of, oh, you're poisoning our oceans. We're really childish and, and angry. And instead of talking about it, we're going to kill you all. So. A lot of stuff that you can do from there. Um, and characters as well, right? So there's, unfortunately, I don't think there's a lot. There's, there's a ton of Marvel or DC characters. There's actually seems to be a few more Marvel aquatic characters, both villains and heroes, than there are DC. Um, a lot of them are named Namor, Namora, or Namorita. Yeah. <laughs> um, but try. Well, what was, the, what was the one, uh, from, what was it? X-Men and Wolverine? Was it Squid Kid or something like that? Squid Boy? Do you know who I'm talking about, Mitch? Oh, the, the animated no series? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, who was that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think he uh, called himself Squid Boy. I saw that Squid series, Boy. but I don't remember. Squid Boy or something it like was that? The, <laughs> it was the episode where... That's an awful name. It, it was the episode where Nightcrawler was uh, helped saving these pe- the mutants that were going to Genosha, yeah. Genosha from pirates yeah. that were being grabbing the yep. mutants. With, uh, Mo- was his name Mojo? Was that, Mojo. Was that the... Yeah. yeah, and he somehow teleports all the way from the middle of the sea to shore. <laughs> Does he? Like just over and over. Yeah, you remember that when oh, the ship was like, I that. Yeah, when, yeah. when he was about, he like he like no, they're like, well, you can try. You can. He teleports. And he, he teleports. Yeah. He teleports a distance, but yeah, he does yeah. it over and over and over right. and over. And it's like, could he do that? Yeah, I don't know if he could do that. There's a we could talk. About, I could talk about Nightcrawler. He's, all day. he's just my favorite Marvel hero. Yeah, he's. Yeah. I love. I love Nightcrawler. Anyway. Uh, so animated series too, like of course Young Justice has a ton of stuff in it, so you can take a look at that and, and some of these movies you can get some good inspiration from. Um, but since we talked last time, there's been a ton of stuff I've discovered thanks to to fans of your show like emailing me stuff They're pretty that's awesome. coming out or has come out. They're pretty awesome. Um, yeah. What the fans? Our loyal blockheads. Oh, I know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, Our loyal blockheads. I am yep. blockheads. That's that. They is, are. That's the, they are. Together, they make up the block party, but individually, they are blockheads. I see. It's a, it's affectionately nice. we call them right. blockheads. We've we've had quite a few of them say yes, call us blockheads. So we've decided yes. That's that's great. That's great. Um, well, there's uh, the Adventure of Week guys. We I was websites. looking at that cool. one. Those the are Adventure sweet. Week. Yeah, the Adventure of Week guys. Their website is awesome, and it's got it literally has like an adventure a week and tons and tons of ideas. A lot of it's for kind of 3.5 and Pathfinder. But again, I, even though something has a particular system to it, 
there is no reason why you can't take this stuff and get inspiration for your 13th age game or your fate fantasy game or whatever you're running like like try not to limit yourself like oh it's for pathfinder i don't want to do the conversions or whatever there's there's tons of stuff you can get inspiration from and make it make it your own right so the adventure a week website is i highly recommend going to check it out it is literally adventureaweek.com but they just this week actually came out with an aquatic encounters deck and it's a 30 card deck that you can draw random encounters out of but they have they have hazards and they have traps they have uh actual uh, like uh, wandering monster encounters um a ton of stuff in this it's like a 30 card deck and it's really really cool yeah so there's, should... there's one that i really like the isle of the stranded it like incorporates this aquatic feel that we were talking about and also uh-huh. the survival feel where it's like with if you pass within a mile of this island you're just yeah. drawn to it and you know what it reminded me of stuck there it reminded me of, the, of lost the yes. tv show like yes, something like that does. where you Best you, you, when, you, when you when you get within a mile of this island, it draws your ship into it, yep. and who knows what you're going to find on there. And then if you start incorporating lost stuff, like like it's a, it's also a time zone, so time mm-hmm. stops. Maybe there's people from ancient races there, and uh, all kinds of stuff. Really cool ideas that that can be used as encounter seed ideas. I talked earlier about Rogue Genius Games Monster Menagerie came out with the horrors of the Aboleth. That thing is awesome. Go check that out. Yeah, I was I looking at that, that one too. I got that one in a in a tab on my google chrome nice yeah. nice and like i said um, um owen and lj stevens from rogue genius were kind enough to give me permission to take a couple of these um beasties from that and convert them from pathfinder to fifth nice. and so and and the the permission to use some artwork and so i'll i'll, I'll have a few of those things up on um tribality at some point when i get back from my sleep deprivation of my child i've, I've had a few weeks behind on my uh, column so i apologize to my fans and the tribality fans but luckily tribality has a ton of stuff that's awesome coming out every week yeah. so hopefully i'm not too mi- well hopefully i missed but hopefully i'm not too missed um <laughs> but i have to say like one of the things that i discovered in the last couple of weeks is this tiny little company called black shark enterprises and they sell their stuff on drive through rpg and there's a couple of things that are awesome about it one almost all this stuff is basically system agnostic Right. But he has two things in particular that jumped out at me. One's called the Pirate GM's Right Fist, and the other one's called the Pirate GM's Ships to Plunder. And the Pirate GM's Right Fist is basically a collection of tables, but the tables are super helpful. Like they have, a, he has a table of, of uh, encounter, of island encounters, like al- islands that you, that you sail by that you've never seen before if you're exploring new areas, right? Potential ideas for land encounters on, uh, on, uh, coastal areas and pirate, you know, cities or whatever. Open sea encounters chart. There's a, there's a ship's cargo chart, which lists a whole bunch of like common and magical things that can just be random if you run across a shipwreck or something else. Hmm. He has, he has a list of real pirate names from history, which was kind of an awesome tool to look at and get inspired for, cause I hate naming characters. Right. I, and particularly pirate characters, they'd all be long John something. I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'd. <laughs> or add the word salty to their name somewhere. Right. Or, or it's, clearly it's they, so difficult they have because a... it's going to be used so often. So you want it to be good. Right. <laughs> and yeah. it's so hard to land on that. That's it, man. Right. That sounds good. Like pink beard and, 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 and chartreuse beard. Pink beard. <laughs> Probably is going to get old after a while. Blonde col- beard. Color coded pirates like di- yeah. like like dragons. They're color coded for your yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Um, right. Um, so there's um, there's also some other stuff in there. These author notes, and it's not very long. It's about two pages of stuff, 
but they're very short, straightforward little paragraphs and just some sentences with super interesting pieces of pirate trivia. And I pulled one of them out here to share with you. Um, it's just this one sentence. It says, because, because the most common size of barrel in the period was roughly the same size as a hog, it earned the names Hogshead. So log entries often show the abbreviation H period, HD period, standing for Hogshead. For example, 40 Hogshead of rum. Now, that's nothing that has to do with game mechanics in your game, but it's a super simple, easy way for you to get some cool feel like Sean was saying in the pirate episode, like how you get this feel of what you're doing across without being overly complicated or throwing out a bunch of jargon that nobody really understands just because you want to look cool or whatever, I guess. But like, that's something I would totally write up in a player handout and have them get a good feel. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. And, and the, these are, it's a small press company. So these, these supplements are like a buck 99 and the pirate GM's right fist is 30 pages and it's got all these tables and stuff in it. It's really cool. And then the Pirate GM ships to plunder. It's 10 fleshed out ships with like their, their one page a ship, but they include a brief history of the ship, details on the captain, what the crew is, what the cargo they're carrying, and, and a little thing of special information. Like one of the, one of the ships was blessed by the goddess of the sea. So it has some, you know, benefits of, you know, protection, but another one has carries swine flu on the ship. So you're, you're, PCs have to make fortitude saves or con saves as soon as they come on board because oh. and it, to carry that disease with them maybe and they don't know it after a few days or whatever. But again, these are just these little ways of making it uh, You could be the reason that a whole city dies exactly because of coming back with swine flu that you didn't know you had. Absolutely. And then each of these ships, they also have what I think is interesting. You know what, as a DM, you guys appreciate this. So you like... You come up, you, you tell somebody like, oh, you see a ship in the distance. And the first thing they ask you is, well, what does it look like? What can we tell from what we can see? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. He has he has a list of things that he calls it through the spyglass. What are the things that you would see looking through a spyglass from a crow's nest? What would you notice? Like, are the are, is everybody lazy? Are they sick? Are they active on board? Does it look clean? Does it look worn down? Does it? And, it, and again, it's super it's, it's a one page total description for each ship. So it's very easy to process in your head and be able to personalize for yourself. And then in addition, which I didn't even notice till after I was already going to talk about it on the, on the show, was that at the end, he has six unique country or trade company flags, like graphics you can use for your fantasy game or an alt history campaign of some sort. So you can show people like what a flag looks like and they kind of know like, oh, well, that's this country we're allied to or not or whatever. Um, again, it, it's this tiny, it's, it's like an 11 or 12 page supplements of like a buck 99, but he somehow packed a lot of really good inspiration and stuff in this. Yeah. In this Cause that's not something you necessarily think of, but that's what, you know, fl- first thing, you know, yeah. You think of flags, like pirates used to have, you know, like the British flag up and then all yep. of a sudden they would switch it to the, you know, the pirate ship when they right. were getting close to you, you know, they, Right, that stuff. That stuff's not the stuff you think of very often, but it's, no, which is what the Jolly Roger it's a pretty was, good marker. Yeah, came from like we're not associated with anyone. Right, we we have a big skull and crossbones, meaning we're dangerous. You know, yep. or whatever. Right. Yep. So um, so yeah, so that's great. Um, a movie I watched, I think since the last time that we had a show too, was called Europa Report, which was a can be good for a science fiction setting. It's kind of a horror movie about us going to Europa, which is the iced 
uh, planet around Jupiter, if I remember correctly. Mm. And the science fiction or the science uh, exploration that goes there. That was kind of interesting. And if you like kind of the twist kind of horror stuff, that's actually really cool. Yeah, because um, it's it, well, if I if I'm reading this right, I'm looking at it right now. They're exploring an unexplored ocean. Like our our ocean is already unexplored for the most yeah. part. Like it's not very explored. Yeah. They're going to like Europa, right outside of Jupiter, on a yeah. moon, and exploring something that's never been explored before. Right, and kind of what they run into, and and kind of the yeah. tech problems and things are kind of I think would be kind of cool for a science fiction, yeah, uh, or a modern, even a modern like near future game. Mm-hmm. Um, some novels that people have been recommending to me and then novels of people that I actually know, uh, Chris Jackson, he does, uh, the pirate's honor and pirate's promise series for the pathfinder tales. So if you're running pathfinder games, those are great books for getting inspiration for your like skull and shackles kind of stuff. He also does a non pathfinder related series called the scimitar series, which has gotten huge reviews. He actually, his wife is a marine biologist and he lives on a ship. He and his, he and his wife live on this sailing ship and they just sail around the world and he writes living on the ship so the man has first like yeah first person it's a little bit easier to describe what's happening when you're actually living living out on it yeah yeah um howard andrew jones uh it does also does pathfinder tale stuff in the in the um in the player for the player's uh episode that we did there was a character concept i talked about about like a lokatha or a sea elf that's lived underwater most of its life, but it is a, is a surface world archaeologist coming up to the surface to learn about this bizarre culture and all of these weird things, right? That concept was inspired by uh, my conversations with, with Howard at Gen Con because he has a book coming out in October of this year called Beyond the Pool of Stars, where his character that he's had in uh, another uh, novel, Plague of Shadows, she is an archaeologist and she goes underwater and beyond the pool of stars he said there's just kind of some shallow water stuff but then the following year through through the gate in the sea i think is the name of the the book that one he's doing deep water stuff and he and i have been talking at gen con about exactly what we're talking about in this podcast like getting it into a novel how to do these fantasy things and what to do to make the novel more interesting for being deep aquatic stuff I can't wait for that book to come out. And I'm, I'm stoked to talk to him because he's a really interesting guy and a, and a great writer. Um, so highly recommend that. Alan Dean Foster had a book back in the day called Cash a Lot, which was great. Again, uh, had to do with uplifted, uh, dolphins and whales. Do- David Brin's Uplift War, Star Tide Rising, the same way, uh, has uh, uplifted dolphins and whales, chimpanzees. Star Tide Rising is about a, uh, it's about a starship that's, uh, entirely, manned by dolphins um really it's it's actually yeah they um they it's a 200 plus crew of dolphins one uplifted killer whale eight humans and a chimpanzee and the chimpanzee is named darwin and he's like a geologist or something and uh they crash land on a planet the ship star tide rising is named the ship and they crash land on a planet and discover uh, this starship that uh, is from some ancient race or whatever, and the entire galaxy is trying to kill them and find it and find this ship. Um, really, David Brin's a brilliant writer, but that that was one of my favorite books of all time. Great book. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Comics. There's a great comic called The Deep, um, which is great family. It's like a, a lot of comics will build themselves as like family friendly and not really not really succeed. 
This right. one is super family friendly. It's like a, it's it's a mixed race family, which I'm excited about. They're kind of like the challengers of the unknown, if you know them from back in the day. They're these explorers. It's a it's a husband and wife, and they're two kids. Um, and the first two collections of books, uh, one was called uh, Here They Be Dragons, I think, is the first one. I just loved it, and I can't wait for more. And I have heard a rumor that they've got an animated series coming out soon based on the comic. Uh, so that's a really cool one to check out as well. Um, so yeah, so those are some of the recommendations and stuff that have come up since the last time I talked to you guys, um, uh, which will hopefully give some inspiration for fantasy and sci-fi, but also maybe some superhero games too. There's a ton of great superhero systems out there and, uh, superhero games are awesome for taking, taking the game under the water. So. Yeah. I still, I still like, um, what was the one that you said last time that was on Netflix? Was it the blue planet? Was that what, was that the one? The or blue planet. Are you talking about a, a, a animated series or no? A movie it was the or? it was the Netflix. Um... There is a there's a the BBC series called Blue Planet. Yeah, that one. That's yep. great. I I watched probably six of the episodes. Yeah, I think there's eight. Phenomenal. There's eight yeah. episodes. I know they're amazing, yeah. right? And so much stuff. Like I just want to do screen captures yeah. of all this <laughs> stuff, right? To yeah. show. And and I, I started off the previous uh, series, uh, the previous podcast, talking about how we have this advantage now that we didn't have back in the day. We mm-hmm. have all this technology. I mean, if you have a question about what is the SoFar channel, it takes you the time it takes you to type it into your computer to find out the answer. Yep. Right. We didn't have this 15, 20 years ago. So you have all these uh, these videos, right? Um, James Cameron has gone to the Mariana bottom of the Marianas Trench, like. That's an incredible feat, and we have video and all this stuff that we can get access to, live feeds from crazy stuff happening. There was a live feed that somebody tagged me in of, um, gosh, what are they doing? There was a research team with a with a ROV doing some kind of research, and like a baby whale, sperm whale, just showed up because <laughs> it, it had seen the light from wherever it was, or maybe it echolocated off of it and came over and just hung out. And they were, I don't know how deep they were, but they were really, really deep. So we're talking a thousand, two thousand meters or something, 1500 meters. I'm not sure. You have to look at the video, but that's not what they were expecting. Right. And so yeah. they got to interact with this thing with their ROV. It was just like a fascinating thing. Like our technology these days can give us this great stuff to use as player handouts and videos and things that'll blow your character's mind. Show them a, show them a screenshot of that underwater lake we were talking about. Mm-hmm. you know great yeah, stuff I, I i think that story of the sperm whale sums up aquatic stuff perfectly of what you what you said and i don't even think you realize what you said but what what's that? what the, what they went down there for was not what they expected and i think that pretty much <laughs> sums up aquatic <laughs> campaigns in general what you're expecting is not what you're gonna get <laughs> yeah what you went down for is not what you're gonna yep i love it yep i love it so cool, cool. yeah so that's uh, that's, do you uh, have, that's, that's yeah, pretty much it. Do you have anything everything. else you want to add at all? Man, I we... think I, I think after this episode, we'll probably have more people throwing questions our way. But, probably. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Like I think this I think this touched base on a lot of the stuff that I actually didn't even realize I hadn't mentioned until other people had right right had talked about. And I'm sure there's probably way more, but people just need to ask you questions now. Yeah, please this do, please do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always happy to answer questions, and I love I love hearing the stories that I've been hearing from um, from all the fans. DM Main Prize sends me random stuff from his dives and stuff like that. It's just it's just 
I, I am, I am, I'm honored and humbled by the stuff people have been sending me. It's been awesome. If they want to send you more stories yeah. or any questions, where can they do that? Yeah. Uh, you can email me at rich at richhowardauthor.com. Uh, you can also contact me on Twitter. It's at Umbral Walker. But uh, I think you can just do a search for Rich Howard. I think I pop up with that. Uh, and of course, Facebook. You know, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Google+. Plus. You can contact me through there. Uh, and then at Tribality, uh, you can contact any of the Tribality writers uh, by just doing info at Tribality.com and then putting in whoever you want to talk to, Brandis or JM or Sean. JM, unfortunately, has moved on, I'm, I'm sad to say. Um, he's got a ton of other freelance work huh. that took him away from his regular columns, but his regular columns are still there, and they're absolutely gold. So you, you see, Boo. If you're, yeah, but I'm really, I'm really excited for him. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm booing that he's gone, but I'm really excited for him he's that he's taken, that he's. Yeah. I know, right? He's taken some of these ideas he was fleshing out with people on Tribality, and he's turning them into supplements, fully fleshed out supplements. Nice. So Sweet. that's awesome for him. Good for him. Good I, for him. I would, I'm I'm stoked to say too that we're getting some female voices on Tribality soon as well. Um, Sweet. Monica Marlowe, who was this year's winner for RPG Superstar. Yeah, um, I heard about that. Yeah, yeah. I, think you, I think did you guys post something about that recently, or you said something about that to I'm me? I'm sure I probably I did. Yeah, because I met her last year at Gen Con for the first time, and she's cool, and she does cool stuff. Her husband Andrew Marlowe does a ton of stuff as well, and uh, she totally deserves that win. And so uh, I think we're gonna be getting her as a regular columnist. Nice. Uh, we're also hoping to get L.J. Stevens. I was talking a lot about Owen Stevens at the beginning of the podcast. Yep. Um, his wife L.J. is awesome and does a excuse me, a ton of gaming, but she also does a lot of layout. She's involved in business, the business side of of uh, the gaming industry, which I think can be some really interesting column topics for people who are interested because we have such, again, such an opportunity for people uh, to be able to share their work out that you didn't have 20 years ago. You'd have to make a professional supplement and get it on the shelves and in front of people. And even if you're just doing your own blog or want to do your own small press PDF stuff like that, Black Shark Enterprises, I think she's going to have a lot of input to say, not just as a gamer, but also as a professional. So um, I'm, I'm stoked uh, that we're going to be getting some more female voices and some really, really good writers beyond the fact that they're female. I'm really excited about it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, Rich, we want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing some more insight with us on the aquatic campaigns. Yeah, thank you so much. I expect another outline here tomorrow because you'll get a lot of... Uh, <laughs> a lot of questions like last time, so well, we'll uh, see. We'll see. Yeah, I hope. Right, I hope. Right. I hope. I hope people are inspired. And uh, the, I think I, they are. Yeah, and I, I want you expect it tomorrow. <laughs> well, that's what I had last time. Like, Man, there's so much stuff that I didn't talk before about before the episode is released. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yep. how much. Yep. <laughs> that, that that actually did. He's right. That actually did happen when we got done doing the episode. I was like, oh, I have a bunch of ideas. Maybe I should do some blog posts. <laughs> yeah, and it ended up like a four page outline. And I was like, yeah. you guys maybe want to do another episode. Yeah. Right. Right. Yep. So, anyway, yeah, cool. thanks well, hey, so much. It's, it's thank, always, yeah, thank you so much. It's always a ton of fun being on the show, and I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, cool. Well, I'm I'm sure right now is a deserved nap after talking with us <laughs> for a couple of hours and having to stay up with kids. So go yeah, go yeah. do that for yourself. Treat yourself today. I will. Thanks. <laughs> Treat yourself. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks so yep. much. See yep. you, Rich. So that's all we have for you today on this episode of the Dungeon Masters Block. We hope that you have enjoyed all of this great aquatic knowledge that Rich Howard has come on to share with us. 
We mentioned that you could reach him at all those places. Chris, if they want to reach us and tell us about their aquatic campaigns, maybe they said, whoa, I'm going to best your campaign of jousting on a dragon turtles. Here's what I did. Try me. (laughs) Uh, Where can they reach us at? Uh, Yeah, you can try and gloat at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. Try your best. I'll gladly shoot you down. But, uh, yeah, just send us in whatever whatever you feel like talking about, and we will be happy to respond back to you. You can also, once we get to 100, like we said at the beginning of the episode, we're going to do something really cool for you guys as a community. So listen closely for that. But go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, and maybe, just maybe, you'll be the one that tips the bucket over onto the 100, the 100 reviews side. Uh, so head over there and do that. You can also join us on our forums. It's Dungeon Masters Block at or dungeonmastersblock.freeforum.net. So head over there, make yourself a profile, and make yourself known. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMs block. And you can like our Facebook page. Both of those places have great DM stuff, memes, resources. Check them out. But it's time now to return once again to the surface world and close out this episode of the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the most important person, the Dungeon Master, the only person capable of playing God, killing all of the characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. Keep on Dungeon Mastering and have a great night. So long, and thanks for all the fish. Goodbye.